three, two, one. Welcome to another episode of the Stoned Apes Podcast. And the three motherfuckers and the captain are back again. And we got a special guest today. Say hello to Mr. Jeff Forbush. How you doing, sir? Doing well, sir. How are you? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad. You're like kind of infamous, aren't you? Well, I've, I've been around. And been around, yeah. <laughs> Heard you're all for gun control. I love gun control. Use two hands. Trigger therapy, right. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you are the owner of Four Bush WRS. What does WRS stand for? So WRS uh, simply stands for Weapons Refinishing Systems. And for our audience who has no clue what the fuck that is, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean exactly? So I am basically a batch and custom Cerakote and laser engraving shop located in Arnold, Missouri. That sounds dope. Yeah, it's, it's good times. Been so, doing it for 14 years. So you make guns look cool. We are a gun pimp, correct. We make guns look cool. Okay, like what kind of stuff do you do to guns? Like if I brought in uh, some new Glock, what what could you do for me? Oh, we could do the solid color stuff, just make it, you know, take it from black to brown, uh, green, uh, or we can go all the way crazy and do uh, theme guns. You know, we can we can totally do a a, a vision gun if you want, or you know, a, a Batman gun, or whatever whatever your fancy is. You know what I've always wanted ever since I seen it on Facebook was that fucking Nintendo gun. Have you seen that? I've done a couple. You've uh, done if a few? Nintendo's listening, I've never, never, I've never done that. Never, never, <laughs> never, never, never. Allegedly, 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 I've done many of those. Allegedly is a theme yes. for this podcast. Yes. <laughs> Again, we allegedly do a lot of shit. Yeah, so I have done those. Uh, I will not post pictures of them. However, comma, Nintendo is notorious for cease and desist letters. Now, when I was in your shop the other day, I seen a really cool gun. It had like a, uh, a copper look to it, but you had some distressing in it. And what kind of what is that? What exactly do you do to get the gun to look like that? So that was that specific gun that you saw was a, a, a gun called the Modulus. Um, basically, it's a, a, a metal Glock, and it's easily interchangeable from a compact to a duty to a competition gun. And basically, what we did was we took a stock gun like that, all black. Uh, we added texture stippling to the frame, and then we Cerakoted it in uh, almost like a Spartan kind of theme. We took old ancient pottery designs and you know Spartan style swords and shields, and uh, we we laser engraved those deep on, and then we Cerakoted it to give it that old Spartan look. Yeah, I fell in love with that thing until you know you told me the price, <laughs> and then I was like, oh my god, I'm a cheap bastard. Yeah, that's that's not a cheap gun by now, any means. You said a metal Glock. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, basically that's what uh, the Modulus is. Uh, there's a newer version from them. It's called the One. Uh, they just haven't released it yet. But uh, the Modulus is their first rendition of it. And it's basically a metal Glock Gen 3 frame, but it's got interchangeable front straps, back straps, magwells, dust covers, and then slides. So you can go within seconds from a compact gun to a competition gun Literally in seconds. Don't they make an AR too? I think they do. Like they make that, a yeah, they make a I, bunch of ARs. I yeah. know who you're talking about. <laughs> no, that's dope. Well, you know, of all of us here, I am the novice. I don't know shit. So uh, Sarge over here owned a gun store, Back. and then Danny is like a professional gunman. That's like what he does. So fun fact. And then this guy over <laughs> here, the professor, is a firearm instructor. So 
I'm like, you know, I don't know shit. So 14 dabble. years ago when you, you started dabble. Your, when You're you started pretty badass. Your, <laughs> I ain't going to lie. I'm impressed. When you started your company 14 years ago, me and a good buddy of mine, we actually owned a powder coating company, and we were looking at dabbling into Cerakote. So, you know, knowing the, the thickness of the finish versus powder and all that jazz. And I found you, and I was using your pictures and inspiration of, like, do we want to do this or not? You know, we kind of went back and forth, and eventually we dissolved the company because I, <laughs> I moved to Florida, and he, he changed out, but... You had a pretty good grasp right away because you were one of the first ones in the area that was doing. Well, you're factory certified, right? Yeah, yeah, we are a factory trained certified shop as well. And and my customer number uh, goes all the way back to 303 with NIC or the manufacturer of Cerakote. That's awesome. Uh, they're in the thousands now. So I'm a I'm an OG original Cerakoter. I think Cerakote was on the market for you know a few few years prior to me picking up the brush and, and running with it. And I started with with. Uh, Duracoat and KG gun coat, and I used all the other, you know, Molly resins and all the other coatings that are out there on the market. Uh, but I, I landed on Cerakote for a lot of different reasons, and the, the big ones was the marketing game, uh, and then two was the the durability and wearability of the product was just immensely better than everybody else. Yeah, their product's solid. Yeah, they are. They have a solid, solid, solid product, and that's why we use it. So besides making a gun look cool, what are the benefits of Cerakote? So Cerakote itself has got a ceramic backbone, uh, which basically means uh, it's impervious to any type of chemicals. So you could literally take your gun and clean it with MEK or acetone or gun scrubber or any of those real solid chemicals that do a really good job. Carb cleaner. Carb cleaner. Yeah, anything, anything really abrasive that you don't normally want to clean your gun with, you could clean it with, with a Cerakoted finish and it won't touch it. Uh, it goes on at about half a mil to a mil in thickness, depending on where you're at. Uh, so the abrasion resistance is there, the durability is there, the chemical resistance is there, and there's also some elasticity to it as well. It's not as elastic as some of the other products on the market, but it's also stronger while still being very elastic. So Now, are you limited to just doing the exterior, or can you do the internal parts of the gun as well? Oh, no, absolutely. We do When we, when we coat a gun, uh, we do everything by the book, everything that NIC, the manufacturer of Cerakote, however they tell us it needs to be done, that's how we do it. So we fully degrease the gun, disassemble, blast it down to bare metal, coat it, and then reassemble it. And yeah. So if you got a gun with a lot of wear, <clears throat> like my shadow is beat to hell because thousands of rounds through it, can you... Do you have to re-Cerakote and blast the whole gun, or can you, like, spot do it? So there's no – if you find a Cerakoter that's willing to give you a spot, t you know, like, yeah. touch up, yeah. uh, run away from him. Okay. Yeah. I wondered about yeah. that. It's got to be – I've heard of it, but I wondered about gotta it. It's got to be completely redone from the jump. That's the only way to really ensure it, it, it's being done correctly. Consistent. Too. And consistent. What – uh? so you said stippling. Is that – do you guys do your own in-house framework? So right now we're currently doing laser stippling and laser stippling only. Uh, and the only thing that we can do is that on Glocks. We right. can't do it on anything else right now. So you don't have like the codes for MMPs or... Correct. Now I've done MMPs. I just don't like the way they turn out because the fiberglass content in them. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more fiberglass. So you get a right. little bit more of abrasive feel. It's not as clean and crisp as it is with a Glock. Um. So do you do anything else? Undercuts? Yeah, we can do single single undercuts, reductions, double undercuts, all that other jazz cut as ledges, well. Cut ledges. Ledges, yes. For yeah, the, not accelerators for, because for the I, there, there might be somebody out there over here you in the careful. industry Words that. Matter. Whoa, 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 hold on, hold yeah, on. You said on. a whole lot of stuff. For, for, no the ignorant, for, for our audience and for me, what the fuck are you talking about? 
Sarge, please, go ahead. I'll, 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 please, I'll, uh, I'll rely so on that one for if you. you, you can undercut your trigger guard kind of where the grip meets the uh, trigger guard. And by undercutting it, it allows your hand to get up closer to the line of bore, so where the barrel is. So it lets your gun get higher. It helps uh, kind of control recoil, um, and you can actually undercut the bottom of the trigger guard itself slightly, and it per it gives your hand purchase for your support hand rolling up under the gun. And then an accelerator cut or a ledge, depending who's listening and who's <laughs> asking, you can put on either side of the gun, and it's a place for your support hand thumb to rest, and you apply slight downward pressure to kind of keep the gun flatter when you're doing strings of fire. Thank you. <clears throat> My <Mic> words. <laughs> My drop. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, and you can do all that, but only for Glot. Correct. Okay. What about Glot clones? Uh, no. 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 Okay. Simple answer. Simple answer. Well, thank God. <laughs> so you're talking we get in like P80s and... Or even a shadow or... Uh, shadows yeah, shadows are already done. done. You don't yeah. really want to mess with a shadow. Those things are pretty Gucci out of the box. And I say Gucci. I mean, for what it is, it's an amazing for piece. For the money. Yeah, for the money. They're an amazing, amazing piece of equipment. Uh, we started getting into like polymer 80s and some of those other 80% polymer guns. Uh, the problem that we get is there's too much fiberglass, and it's the same thing with like the Smith and Wesson I mentioned a second ago. There's too much fiberglass in there, so the laser can't differentiate between fiberglass and plastic. It doesn't give a shit what it's doing; mm -hmm. it's going to hit it like it's going to hit it. So the the fiberglass stays while the uh, fiberglass uh, the fiberglass stays while the polymer just evaporates, and it does it at different rates. Mm -hmm. So you start getting that really weird, ucky feeling when you started getting into polymer 80s and some yeah, of those other I've, guns so I've, heard, the, I've heard on all those you got to do them by hand with either uh correct so are manufacturers using the fiberglass to reduce weight uh it's durability durability yeah. durability okay it uh what about uh you don't know, cz like the p10c's or anything same problem or same exact problem they're actually worse than everything else really there's a lot of fiberglass in those hmm. i've always wanted to own a lionheart so, funny story, uh, if Lionheart's listening, uh, I said it, not a fan. Really? Yeah, not a fan. I liked it just because it reminded me of the Beretta. They look cool, uh, but for the money, there's so many better options out there, in my own opinion. So, you want to hear a funny story about the Beretta? I was competing <laughs> at the All-Army, and we, were, we had just done a uh, pistol stage. Uh, the action shooting team was out there, <clears throat> and I had just come off the line, and a buddy of mine was right behind me. And you shot a Texas star, which is basically it's steel plates on a star that it starts the star spinning as soon as you're shooting it. And then we had two poppers that dropped and then a plate rack. Well, my buddy runs down, cleans the star, drops the two poppers, and he runs over and he gets halfway through the plate rack. And we hear, Wow! And my buddy's like looking over his shoulder and the safety's like, hey, cease fire. <clears throat> and we come over and one of the other guys had ran up. You know how there's that lazy U in the Beretta slide? Mm -hmm. The slide had sheared in half, and the front had flown back over his shoulder. The all-army oh, team shit. literally went up there and was snapping pictures and was like, dude, we got to send this to Beretta. Mm -mm. Damn. Yeah. Mm -mm. Well, now, See, now, now we have I, to worry about SIGs. I was pretty fond of my <laughs> <You> know, Beretta. <laughs> I've heard a lot of that's bullshit. I don't know. I'm going to... Yeah, well, the what was a good guy gun and Die Hard? That's I what think, I thought. Well, what? it was a Beretta, wasn't it? I exactly. Think, okay, 92, right? Fair. Well, I think the captain's yeah. a SIG fan over there. 
1980 call. They want I'm, their I'm, gun back. I'm, Glock, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a Glock guy all day long, but SIG does make a good product. They hone their barrels. Yeah, they, SIG they, does I, make a good product. I, they have a SIG, very good barrel. I, I think SIG's problem is it's just like when I did the video on the macro for SIG Tactical. Very impressed. They innovate. Like They do. Feel how you want to feel about them. Um, the macro is still on my short list of a, a gun to pick up. Um, because it's like a magic trick and they make everybody else in the industry figure stuff out and like you said they create a great product but i mean even the uh mcx had problems initially when it first came out oh a lot of problems right but they buffed it out but they fixed it exactly i'm surprised by how many big game big name guns don't live up to their reputation like my first experience owning a kimber was not a fun one like it was a very quick turnaround for me. Kimber's trash. As yeah, a, as a gentleman who's Concur. been inside of Kimber's facility, their production they make a beautiful product, but their quality control is not working. So needs the to be. problem yeah. with the 1911 by design, they were designed to be fitted by craftsmen. When they in pre World War II, everybody, every one of those was fitted slide to frame. With modern manufacturing and stacking tolerances, which I'm sure you, Danny, I know you know all about. Mm-hmm. The problem is you get one, like a part that's a hundredth out over here and another part that's a hundredth out. You can have problems. I actually had a uh, Kimber TLE and TLE RL2. And I bought them because my cousin who works for LA County SWAT, they had got issued those. Well, I'm sure Kimber QC'd the hell out of the guns going to them. So I'm in there uh, at a range in Indianapolis, and I'm doing just failure drills on a target. I'd put in a fresh mag, and I was running Chip McCormick mags. Those are good magazines. And uh, I got, like, halfway through the first string of fire, and my slide lock backed. I went to do a top tap rack, tapped, went to rack, nothing happened. Racked hard, racked hard. The slide was seized to the rear. I ended up having Mm. to go grab their gunsmith. We had to manually eject all the rounds out through the magazine, through the top of the ejection port, finally beat the magazine out with a punch, and then had to manually get the gun to go forward because it had seized up. After that, I put it for sale, and I run polymer striker-fired guns for defense all day, every day. So what what causes that is called a tolerance snowball. So when you make a part, they have a a tolerance, and it's – it plus or minus a small increment of measurement. Usually, it's one to one and a half thou, mm-hmm. which is point zero zero one five for the audience. Well, what happens is if you have a min max on a slide, and let's say it's got a one and a half thou tolerance, and it's on the high side of that, if right. you have the the handle, well, if it's one and a half thou and it's at the bottom of that, yeah, now stacked. you're now you're three thousand out of tolerance. Mm-hmm. That's what causes, stuff and that's like massive. That. Right? Oh, it's huge. That's stacking huge. tolerance. And uh, to be honest, for the nineteen eleven John Moses Browning was a genius. So there's nothing. I don't have a problem with the design, but because of modern manufacturing, it's not conducive to it. I would not carry one for defense. Unless every gun I'd be looking at would be at least $3,000, and that's probably on the low end. And to be honest, even with modern defensive ammunition, I'd rather have more bullets, so I'm probably going to be running a 2011. Like, 9mm has the same terminal bullets and bodies performance as 45, or close enough. Where close the, enough. Well, that the ex- difference is <laughs> that negligible. Ex- that explains the issue that I had with the Kimber that I had. I went to the range the first time, and I think I got through about 100 rounds, and the magazine failed to eject. Yep. And I literally it got so hot that it just seized up in the gun, and I couldn't get the magazine out. And I thought, well, it was a new gun. Maybe it just needed to break in. You know, I let it cool down. And then about six range trips later, repeating the exact same thing. And, I, and that's why I got rid of it. You know, I only own 
own guns as tools. I'm not a gun guy, right? So to me, it's like that's a defensive weapon. And I thought, man, if I was ever in a firefight with this thing, I am screwed. Yeah. If I can't put them down in the first hundred rounds, I'm fucked. I literally looked at mine and I was like, this thing would have been a hammer, mm -hmm. and that would have been it. And after that, <laughs> you know, there there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason that everybody now makes a medium-sized striker-fired polymer frame. Everyone, the and the especially since the patent expired on the Gen Three Glock. Hold on, like every. It's just everybody's just going to continue to innovate. Uh, Springfield just came out with uh, the, not the Prodigy, the Prodigy was yeah. their 1911. Oh, what it just got I released. I saw what you're talking about. I can't remember. Yeah, oh. and I looked at it, and everybody was like hyping it, and I go, "It's a Glock 17 right. or a Glock 19." Like I'm not impressed. It's a Prodigy. Oh, it is the Prodigy. Yep. Okay, maybe I was thinking of whatever that other one was. No, there was one prior to that one. I know, I know which one you're talking yeah, about. I can't remember. It was what a it big is. release, and yep. it failed. Colossally, yeah, it was a big one as well. Um, <laughs> well, at least those aren't made in Croatia, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with you, Croatian listeners out there. Yeah, yeah I don't know if we have any of those. Step your gap. Look up. at that. Yeah, we'll have to. We have, to, <laughs> we have listeners. Target audience. All kinds of. Well, as soon as you start talking shit, we'll start getting. It. <laughs> oh right, uh, no shit. Right. I'm still to, waiting for that Malaysian guy to get a hold of me. I need I to can't learn figure out where the fuck he's at. Croatian. Ooh, that'd be fun. I know. Probably wouldn't sound very pretty, though. Or no. the, the Echelon. Is that what you were talking about? Echelon. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The Prodigy was their uh, 2011 clone. Correct. They were trying to get a budget, entry-level, staccato-ish right. gun. Well, but it does come in a really cool box. It fucking well, better. So, I mean, I'll it's own a cool a 1911 box. to look at. Yeah, I still, want, yep. I still want a pretty Kimber one day just for it to sit on a shelf. Uh, oh, I would get a Nighthawk or a Les Bauer Absolutely. or one of the custom yeah. line. They're well, pretty. Well, and Les is in Missouri, too. So You know, right. even if I bought one, it'd just end up in a shelf in here. That's it. <laughs> it would just be a decorative item. Right. Like, that's it. Put it yeah. next to your high point. Like, you'd have it, like, in a case for emergency break glass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, worst case scenario, reach for this because everything else has failed. Yeah. $3,500 gun, yeet cannon. Yeet cannon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I fixed my situation because now I only buy guns that Sarge tells me to buy. And that's pretty much it. That's how I ended up with the shadow systems. Don't regret it, you know. So, yeah, yeah I just do whatever he tells me. I figured he's the expert, and I'm just going to go with that. Well, you know, like, when you look at what you can get for it, for them specifically, like, for a Zev or an agency or something like that, like, you're getting very close to the same gun. Very close. For... Fraction of the price. Fraction. Not to say, and I love Zev and Agency, but mm -hmm. for a little more than a Glock, too, with everything else done to it, that you'd end up doing your own probably over time anyway, why not? Yep. So shout out to Shadow Systems, man. It, how many rounds do you think we've put down range right Like, dude, it's been... I don't. I haven't cleaned it once. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not one... Zero malfunctions. Probably, I know mine... There's at least 15,000. I know that's yeah. bad. No. Nah. <laughs> you know, I, uh, my Man. shadow systems, and I wasn't at the I cleaned range mine before we went to the USCCA instructor course. I did Just because. Well, I was just. You don't want to be that guy. I think I had. <laughs> I was. I think I had about 3,000 <laughs> rounds through mine before I cleaned it the first time. Yeah, I don't, I don't clean. I'm terrible. I don't. Yeah. I buy weapon systems that I don't have to because I'm going to yeah. fight well, with my life for them. Well, don't you Cerakote them? <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, the funny thing is, out of all the guns that I own, which if the ATF is listening is only one, um, I, I have, I literally have like two that are Cerakoted. 
Like really? Yeah, I Cerakote for a living. It's uh, it's what I enjoy doing. Uh, I don't have time to do my own stuff, unfortunately. Well, I think that's common of any profession, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's the mechanic yep. that never yep. has his own car fixed, right. and the construction guy that's never got the house project. Well, I'd say the, the 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 guy that's teaching you know civilians to jump out of an airplane, he, he very rarely, rarely jumps by himself. He's usually got yep. some soccer mom strapped to his chest, right? You know. Yep. Yeah, that's just the nature of the beast. Exactly. Well, I want to circle back and kind of because you know I found you a long time ago. And I think that the one thing that's incredible about your story that the audience would be interested in listening to, since we've already lost all our liberal listeners. Um, <laughs> Episode one. But if, but, but if Glock is listening, you they're should definitely li- sponsor the podcast. They're classically liberal. We're good, man. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, or shadow. But, but or shadow systems. We'll take both. I will pose uh, in my underwear with a Glock liberal. just Look, to dude, get sponsors. Eric and I talk Bad. about it all the time. I'm like, I want, do that, I want my lesbian neighbors to be out there protecting their weed with Oh, ARs. dude, that, that'll be the first one thousand percent. <laughs> <laughs> it'll it'll be us in all bare wall with like Glocks and shadow systems. It'll be amazing. I'm we'll sell it. the calendar online. It'll be fucking dope. Don't threaten me with but, a good time. So, <laughs> I can hold a Glock in my ass cheeks. <laughs> I have no Check doubt. Check that grip, homie. <laughs> you learned that in the army. Quit lip twisting. Nah. Built-in accelerator cuts. <laughs> so I think what's Those most are amazing. Ass <laughs> I think what's most amazing about your business is what you were able to do because, and I don't remember the story, so I won't butcher it for the audience, but uh, you started from very meager beginnings and now you're a nationwide, very uh, influential individual in your business. Would you like to tell us your story about how you did that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really not a, it's, it's not a big deal to me, but I guess other people might find it interesting or or possibly eye eye opening if they ever want to you know become self-employed and entrepreneurial uh back 14 years ago uh they didn't make a lot of things that were different colors um especially in the ar market there was it was black that's all you really had an option for uh i wanted a tan handguard and no one made it so i said well how i can figure that out so i i bought a troy industry handguard um which was the the rave, you know, then. And I took it home and I started researching different ways that I could do it. Spray paint, you know, go to Lowe's and buy this or go to Sherman Williams and buy that. And I found Duracoat and uh, I I took it down to my basement and uh, I I roughed it up with some sandpaper and uh, went in Harbor Freight and I bought myself a little cheapo Harbor Freight gun and I sprayed it and it looked terrible, so I redid it again and, and that came out okay. And I was I was okay with okay because it was going to be a, a weapon that I was going to use. I didn't really care if it was going to get beat. Uh, took it to the range and all my friends saw it and they're like, how the hell did you get a tan Troy handguard? And I told them the story and then they're like, hey, I, I, can you do mine? And uh, the light bulb went off and the entrepreneurial spirit was born at that point. I said, oh shit. Uh, I, I might have I might have something here. So instead of chugging along, doing my you know army reserve time and working for the man, I was like maybe I can make something go here. So I took their stuff and I started doing it, uh, and I did a lot of friends things, and then people heard, and I started doing more things, and then people started hey like can you do my gun? I'm like well no I can't because I'm I'm not a dumbass and I know I have to have an FFL for that. Yeah. So give me your gun on the side. No, I didn't do any of that. Seriously, ATF. Um, but after about a year and a half of doing other people's accessories, I said, okay, there's there's a business model here. 
So I put out a, a crazy thing on a forum because I didn't have a logo. I didn't have a name. I asked my parents and my friends, like, hey, what should I call this? And they came up with all these crazy names. And I wanted to incorporate my, my last name into it because my last name is Forbush. And uh, my dad came up with Forbush Weapons Refinishing Systems. I thought, okay, that's cool because we were at the time using Duracoat and Cerakote and Guncoat. We weren't using just specifically Cerakote because I hadn't landed on a product yet. So that kind of encompassed everything that we were doing. Um, did a DBA, and away we went. And a few years later down the road, I landed on Cerakote as a primary product. All the other ones got kicked out, and, and I jumped from my house to a shop to a bigger shop to a bigger shop to a bigger shop. I went from myself to one employee to two employees to three employees and so on and so forth. And here I am 14 years later just doing the do good for you man that's awesome that is amazing so gotta love how the grind can just add up Absolutely. oh yeah i'd rather work 80 hours for myself than 40 for anybody else so let's talk about that let's, <laughs> let's talk about the grain how much effort did you have to put into building your business uh a lot a whole lot i i sacrificed a lot of family time i sacrificed a lot of friend time sacrificed a lot of uh personal development things that i could have been doing colleges and schools in the military and so on and so forth uh, to, to chase this crazy dream down of, of being my own, you know, my own employer. Uh, so it, it was a lot of grind, a lot of hours. You know, when I first started out, it was very part-time. I'd do five, ten hours a week, and that quickly grew into 20, and that quickly grew into 40, and that quickly grew into 60. Uh, then I would reel it back for a little while because I was getting burnt, and so and then I was doing, you know, instead of 60 hours, I was doing 58 uh, and then I'd go back up to 70 and yeah. so on and so forth. You get it, Sarge. You know how it is. All, all the self-employed people in the room, you guys get it. You know, it's just a, it's every, a grind. Every single one of us in this room is that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You still are. Was, yeah, you still Well, And you mentioned the magic number. That's, that's what I found, at least for me. I work 60 hours a week. That's my magic number. Anything over that, my quality of my work seems to go downhill and I start to get burned out. But it, I can pretty consistently maintain a sixty-hour-a-week schedule. Oh, absolutely, sixty! I think anybody in this room can probably manage sixty hours standing on their head. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. that. I think is pretty common, and it's just about finding the opportunities and getting things put together, cool. and, and the balance in work life and family life too. Because the, the the older I got and the more established I became in the business, uh, and I've done other business opportunities as well. You know, I ran security companies, and I've done some yeah. other things. I created a an apparel line that I'm starting to, to grow now. Um, so it was all about that balance of work and family, too, because I, I got married 10 years ago, and we had our first kid uh, six years ago, and then we had another one four years ago. So as, as those things grew, I quickly started realizing, because I grew up in a military family. My dad was 26 years, retired sergeant major. Uh, we moved every two years. I never had the same <laughs> friends. Uh, and we did that all the way up until my junior year, no, excuse me, my sophomore year of high school. Uh, and then that's when he retired and started teaching high school. So from my sophomore year to my, my senior year in high school, that was the most longevity I had anywhere in my life. So I didn't know, I didn't know what family life work balance was. You know, I, I just I just knew to hustle and work, and all that stuff would come into play. But then when I started to get my own family, I was like, oh shit. Uh, do I want to continue that chain? And I didn't. So I, I quickly established what that, that balance was. And it's, it's different for everybody. Everybody in this room has a different family life 
and a, and a work balance. And I figured out what mine was, and that's what I stick to. Yeah, and that's a concept that I think is new to our generation. Like you said, our parents didn't maintain that at all. They just worked themselves yeah. into the ground. And, and that really impacted my relationship with my parents, you know, and my ability to be able to get to know them as people. How, how would you describe your relationship with your father during those periods? Oh, I, I had no idea who my dad was. I knew he was a guy that would come home and... Uh, usually beat on me <laughs> for not doing you know the right thing because my father was very dress right dress it was there was one way to do it and you don't stop until it's done uh, and i grew up in that kind of household uh, when he would come home uh, we would spend time doing father-son things but it was it was different it was very rigored and structured and this is the way you hunt this is the way you fish this is the way you talk to people you know th it was very rigored there was no gray life in, in that man's life there's Shit. no gray area my dad's still like that <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was until the day he died uh he was very 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 rigored and, and straight uh which was a great backbone for me um and and it's created a, a a very solid foundation foundation yeah and and in a way i look at life uh, and i try to impart that on my employees and my partners and everybody i come across you know i don't have a lot of gray in my life which is fine, but I can also bend because I've been taught to be very flexible. You know, the Marine Corps, you always uses Semper Gumby, um, but that does apply across a lot of different branches yeah. right? You know, and a lot of different lifestyles. Well, and we talk about pendulum swings all the time, and I think you see with this younger generation, you know, as we started to embrace more of the work-life balance and we started to embrace some of these other things, I think one of the mistakes that uh, our generation made is we abandoned all of the good stuff that was present in the previous generations, like you had just mentioned, 100%. you know. And then we see this generation coming up that is even further removed from some of those things. And so I feel like it's our responsibility to kind of put back into that recipe you know you still need hard work there is a time to grind there is there is a time to say hey you know what i got to sacrifice for a minute to get and achieve the things that i want um because you just can't walk out in life and expect it and you see that so much today you know all these young kids they 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 see what their parents own or what their parents have and then they just expect to go out there at 20 years old and well i should be able to buy a house right. i should be able to buy a new right. car right. and what? it's like no 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 it doesn't work that way i was no, i worked no. 20 years before i got to get any of these things you know well and i do that now with my children i know we came to talk about guns and stuff like that but i mean there's no reason why we can't talk about this stuff too but even with my children you know my my youngest is uh he just turned four and my daughter is just getting ready to turn six uh and my wife god love her and she probably won't listen to this because she knows i'm gonna say dumb shit but uh <laughs> she was she's a single uh she was a only child uh and her lifestyle was very different than mine uh, but sometimes the things that I do to impart that knowledge that my father imparted on me, mind you, was way more harsh. Uh, I'm taking a softer approach, but I'm still imparting the same knowledge. I'm just doing it in a 2023 mindset. Uh, my kids, they know what hard work is at you know age four and age six. They know that if you want something, you got to work for it. And I make sure that they, they understand that. And I, I take them to work with me on days where I know I have to spend time with those kids and I need to get something done, I make sure they understand, hey, you're going to work with dad, and this is why we're going. You know, uh, this morning, <clears throat> the professor and I were in the gym lifting at uh, 8 o'clock, and we were talking, <clears throat> we were talking about doing it for people at the gym, like as an example, because it's, and I, I brought up in the military, the best 
leaders I had, and I'm like, it's called inspired leadership. And to your point, you know, different achieving a desired outcome doesn't have to have the same road mm -hmm. for everybody. Hundred percent. But there's usually consistent principles along that road that get people there. Well, I like what he what Jeff said because it's like it's the evolution of thought and the adaption of technique to achieve yeah. goals, right? Yeah. And finding out it's like you you learn. You learn yeah, from your own experiences, great. but you can also learn from the experiences of others. Oh, you just tried the bourbon, didn't Good you? Good stuff, right? <laughs> Yum. I'm telling you right now, the captain's bourbon is no joke. Yum. Yeah. This is going to be a three-hour podcast, by the way. And, you just, <laughs> and, and for reference, you just got done drinking some Angel's Envy. I did. It and was very good. how does that compare to that Angel's Envy? Like oh, I'll take this all day. Yep. Yes, sir. Like all day. Yeah. Yeah. All day, all day. But can we agree? It's whiskey. It is whiskey. There is a whiskey. By, by <laughs> definition, it is whiskey. <laughs> whiskey. But bourbon sounds <laughs> so much better. <laughs> bourbon has a cooler name. It does than sound cooler. <laughs> I bet that'd be really good and like an old fashioned. Oh yeah, it is. Mm. Old fashioned tomahawk. You ever had it? Mm. No. I have to make you one sometime. You, you had me at old fashioned. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. So it's what's good. different about the old fashioned tomahawk? So an old fashioned tomahawk, you take orange bitters. Uh, I can't remember the other kind because I can't get it now, so I have to make it with just orange bitters. But orange bitters, you muddle in orange peel and uh, two sugar cubes. And then uh, I, I've made it with that. Usually I use four roses or like Buffalo Trace or something. Yeah. Um, to, but to be honest... Mm. That stuff's kind of too good. Like when we were at Santino's last Friday, the girl was giving me shit. Cause I'm like, hey, you make an old-fashioned? Because I know they have all the smoke infusers and all that shit there. And the all, other, the, all the Gucci the, shit. Uh, the other girl started giving me shit. She's like, oh, geez, I thought you were a man or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. You want to see a man? Anyway. <laughs> we got that whistle pick 12 up there, which I absolutely love. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, I'll, that is every bit. Oh, every, every bit. bit. All day, quality. every day. That is an amazing, amazing song. Absolutely. Day, every day. That's, that's wonderful. Um, so, Thank you. Uh, your dad was a Sarm major, mm -hmm. and you and I have talked before, and I know you were a Cav Scout. So my MOS, when I started off in 94, I started off as 31 Romeo, which is multi-channel yep. transmission systems operator. Signal fag. Signal fag. <laughs> I quickly realized what that was. Uh, so I quickly reclassed uh, to a 19 kilo. So I was a tanker for out of the 22 years, I was a tanker for 21. So I... I Death before I, dismount. Damn Skippy. Yeah. <laughs> you were the assholes I had to serve chow to. Yeah. No. I kept a, yeah. lot of, kept a lot of infantrymen warm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, JRTC. Warm coffee Ugh. up on your truck all day, Ugh. every day. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you, you know, I'll let the audience in on a little bit of something, because you mentioned it earlier that you started an apparel company. You are the official apparel company behind the Stone Apes podcast. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yeah, Lucky you're me. Ma you're making all our gear. I yeah. am. Swag, baby. looks amazing, well, by the you. way. Thank you. You made us, and you brought as a gift, you made us some custom engraved coasters i did those are dope by the those way those are fucking yeah, i didn't dope. know you were gonna be here I'm no not, i'm not mad i'm just disappointed I, I, <laughs> yeah. I got, I, i've got one for you buddy appreciate it yeah yes, you sir. put like each of our fire. names on them i did that's an amazing product it looks so clean yeah very impressed with the quality of your work thank like you very much sam doesn't use his coaster like a gentleman <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm saving it. He's just ruining the pup table. Yeah. So on right, your, no big deal. I'm saving so on your laser. I got to leave my mark. That's what it's here for. He's going to piss on your leg later. So on your graving machine, what kind of laser are you using? Is it a very large unit or is it a smaller one? What, what kind well, of my system? wife says my unit is very small, but I think, I think I'm average. Well, you're white, so that's going to happen. Uh, indeed, indeed. <laughs> is that six inches or is that six inches? Well, a man's measurement is way different than a woman's. <laughs> Uh, no, so I have currently have two fiber lasers. I have a 60-watt JPT, and then I've got a 50-watt IPG laser. Uh, they're both class 4, so they're all open. So the footprint on them is very small. So That's what's cool. the difference between the two? Uh, wattage, obviously, 50 and 60. We, we're not drunk enough yet. We can do math. Um, and then IPG is a German source laser, where JPT is a Taiwanese source. So um, uh, just for everybody out there listening, there is no such thing as an American-made laser. Uh, the source, uh, which is what I'm talking about, they're all made in Japan, Taiwan, China, and Germany. No, fair. Yeah. See, I didn't know that. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so years ago, I, I, should, I can't even do the math now, but it's probably close to seven years ago, I bought my first laser. Uh, that was the 50-watt IPG laser, um, and that laser was very expensive. No, I know you do the laser engraving on weapons, you know, uh, but this is a stone coaster. Yep. What other types of materials can you engrave? People. I, and I have. I've <laughs> accidentally engraved myself. It, it does hurt very, very badly. But do you think you could do good work, though? Uh, no, it, it was terrible. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. I had a scar for, like, a while. Um, but uh, so the, the simple answer is a fiber laser will engrave pretty much all your non-organic s- substances, your metals, your polymers, um, rubbers, you know, things of that nature. Uh, I also have a CO2 laser, but I don't really use it very much. And that's going to engrave your, your organics, your leathers and your woods and things of that nature. Oh, fair. That's cool. Yeah, what I did your coasters on was the fiber laser. Oh, okay. It'll, it'll cut rock, basically. Very interesting. So those, like, when we see jeans and they have all those fancy designs on the back pockets and stuff like that, is that all laser engraved? It is now. Yeah, oh. there are there are large industrial grade, and those, are, believe it or not, are, are fiber lasers. Um, most of them are gantry-style lasers because there's two different styles of lasers. Um, but those, believe it or not, are usually done on these large industrial, large lens fiber machines, and they're oh. done very quickly. Uh, I haven't done jeans yet. I don't wear jeans very often. In the winter, I'm usually wearing... You never have pants on when I'm there. Well, that's how we get down. At yeah. Yeah. yeah, all right. You know. You know, if you don't come naked, then don't come at all. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I thought the, the clothing optional was a joke when I showed <laughs> That's up. That's our motto, man. I would like yeah, to extend that, to you an invitation to the pants party. Yeah, that was, I'll tell you what, for a great bus- movie. I know, great movie. You know, for a business consult, it was awkward. <laughs> it, it, at first. At first. I mean, I got used to it. Exactly. I stuck around. Stop spitting on me. <laughs> So, Jeff, I'm looking on your website, and there's a Glock 42 here that you did some etching in. It looks like uh, a dual-colored camo. What, what kind of price range is someone looking at doing something similar to this? I know we can't hold you to the cross, but what are they looking at price-wise? Price so, it's, it's, everything is, is very custom when we start talking about firearms refinishing. Uh, but there are some benchmarks that we can pretty much gauge off that. The gun that you're looking at is a three-color Infidel Flage, mm-hmm. which was a pattern I developed a long time ago, and I thought, hey, I need to come up with a cool name. And uh, shout out to Brian Tackenberg, who actually came up with the name of Infidel Flage. Um, 
but it's an airy kind of atax looking pattern uh, we use typically three colors uh, on a glock or any type of handgun like that upper lower um, that's really all you got um, you're looking at about three and a half four hundred dollars depending on what we're doing and then we go up from there we can do cryptech and uh, multi-cam and all marpat and digital and all those other patterns uh, no one has yet to pay me to do like real tree or any of those 3d styles boring uh, incredibly labor intensive so you take a $400 gun and then now you want it to look like real tree now that $400 gun is easily two grand yeah because there's exponentially more colors the process itself is incredibly detailed and it's a pain in the ass oh massive like like digital like i i cut my teeth doing digital because when i started this business digital was up and coming right it was that was the the new uniform and that was the cool thing to do uh so i cut my teeth doing digital um but then i quickly realized that if i wanted to actually make money and feed my family (laughs) i was not going to be able to charge what i was charging because every one of those squares is a stencil a sticky stencil and it's done in in about five stages so it's incredibly complex and takes a ton of time. Such a stupid pattern. And, you, yeah, you want to get lost in a 1970s couch. It makes sense well, because you know, we live you in know a simulation. You know what's funny? So <laughs> <laughs> when the Army, prior to my first deployment, the Army was looking at going with the uh, ACU, and we were all – each platoon in my company was given a different camouflage scheme of the same uniform. Sure. Uh, I actually have still a woodland version – pants on the shoulders everything uh and one platoon was given uh scorpion which is multi-cam they just didn't have rights from cry yet and uh all the feedback we got or that we gave them was go with scorpion go with multi-cam so (laughs) at the end of that deployment we had just come down from rawa uh it's this al-qaeda stronghold we've been taking down and my platoon was the first one back, and we heard, hey, the new guys coming in from Alaska have all the new shit with the new pattern. And we're like, oh, cool, right on. And all of a sudden, these guys are, you know, getting brought in from the airfield or whatever, and we see them getting out, and I'm like, what the fuck? We're in ACUs? Yeah, right. Well, yeah, yeah. you know, skip ahead uh, several years later, um, I'm in the Maneuver Senior Leader course as an E6 promotable. And we're in this big room with PEO soldier, and there had just been all the congressional testimony where people had been getting fucked up for, you know, all that stuff. And the base, the base camouflage for the issued Army sniper system was multicam for everybody else. Now, you're in a room full of Cav Scouts, Delta operators, infantry guys, and everybody's going, we need that. For deployment, some guy from PEO soldiers like, I'm tired of you guys bitching about this camo when I don't see people deployed camo in their face. And a buddy of mine, uh, shout out Chris Masters, he was in, uh, he was a platoon sergeant in uh, Ranger Regiment. He's like, hey, hold on. He's like, you have a room full of, he goes, I'm assuming you're a combat vet, probably a retired SAR major from Vietnam or something. He's like, you have hundreds of years of combat experience in this room of all levels, and everybody's telling you there's a problem. Your baseline sniper system is that camo scheme, 
and you want to tell us we need to camo our faces? Why don't you shut the fuck up and give us what we're telling you we need? And then all that came out about how it was like insider trading and all that bullshit. Mm. But it's funny because I was there at the ground floor of the testing and we were all like, that is not what we need. We need that thing. It was so stupid. I had DCUs. And BDUs. So that's what we were rocking. Black vest. Matter of fact, <clears throat> so yeah. the DCUs, my uh, first. I just dated myself. <clears throat> no. First Sergeant Alexander, I've talked about it here, on here on that deployment, came from Ranger Regiment. As soon as we got in theater, or before we left, actually, we had uh, one of our guys who was real good with a sewing machine. He was actually making strippers' outfits in Tacoma, Washington for them. He moved all of our pockets from down below up to our sleeves, and all my uniforms were that way. When I went to go home on R&R and I was in Kuwait, <laughs> they lost their minds that I had a modified uniform there. And were like, you better find a good top or you're not going home. I'm like, I will jack that airplane. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I don't have another uniform. I'm going on R&R. <laughs> so speaking of, of you being a veteran, is there anything that you do with veterans organizations? So I'm not nearly as involved as I should be. Um, I've spent time with numerous different ones throughout the years. I've never found one to stick with. Um, and that's on me. Yeah, I should do more. I really should. Fair, fair. Well, we'll have you join us on the Willie's Project. 100%. Yeah. I do a lot, and it's it's strange. I'm I'm not a prior LEO guy by any means. I've spent a lot of time with LEO guys. Uh, I did some time training uh, down at Asymmetric Solutions with all of those dudes, and we cross trained into a lot of LEOs. So I was I trained a lot of LEOs and spent a lot of time with them. Uh, and I have a lot of LEO friends, uh, but ironically, even with my military background, most of my charity outreach has been on the LEO side. Um, I, really involved with a group called cops and bobbers um that's an awesome 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 group um and then i also spend a lot of time doing uh, some smaller leo outreach things where i donated a gun for you know a fallen officers the family or whatever uh, but i need to spend more time back on the roots of of who i am which is the military side and, and nothing wrong with the leo side but i just i need to do both i guess Mm, fair, yeah. fair. Well, speaking of refinishing systems, do you do powder coating as well? So, uh, it's, it's a funny story. <laughs> I, I I have a, a subcontract employee, and I'm using air quotes since there's no video here, uh, but he basically subs all, all the powder work through our shop. I had the opportunity to, to, to buy that part of the business from a friend who, who started or helped me kind of grow. Um, and when he got out of it, he sold it to another guy who worked for me. I had the opportunity to buy it, and I just didn't. But the, the, the long circle back is, yes, we sub powder coat work out of our shop. Oh, fair. So what kind of things do you powder coat? I don't powder coat anything, but he... What, what kind of things <laughs> does he powder coat? <laughs> he powder coats a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of wheels, a lot of patio furniture. Um, there's some aerospace stuff, and there's... Uh, some like trophy shop things that he does, uh, but there's there's a lot of weird things that kind of come through the shop on the powder coat side. No, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, we were considering doing some powder coating on the willies, like you know, powder coating the frame and things like that. What's your recommendation for that? So powder coat, by all means, has got its place in life. It's it's a fantastic product for durability and wearability. It's thicker. Um, it's not as chemically resistant, but again, we're going on vehicles, so it doesn't really matter. 
but for, for what you're looking at doing, powder is going to be king. For really? sure. Yeah. UV stability. Uh, it's got a little better UV stability than Cerakote does. So, so yeah. it won't fade out. Yeah. As fast. No, but powder coating is exponentially better than paint. Exponentially. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. Big yeah. time. My the truck I just bought has this uh, skid plate on the front that they kept in this silver, and I don't like it. And I think I'm going to take that off and get that powder coated. Well, you got to think when you paint, you're putting a, a wet substance on a metal product. But when you powder, you're putting on electronically charging it apart, and the powder goes on dry, and you bake it, and it chemically like connects itself to the bonds. material. It yeah. bonds. Right. It does. And you know that because you owned your own powder coating business. Right. Yeah. That, and, and powder usually lays on about three mil thick, but it's so as long as you prep it right, durability should not be an issue. Yeah, prep is key. So sure. that would be a good choice for a skid plate. Oh absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah, powder's definitely got its place and in, in, in the application that you're speaking of, powder's king. For sure. Fair. Now do you do your own sandblasting then? We do everything in house. I sub nothing. Everything's done by by us in house. So we do our own. And you have a pretty good sized facility, don't you? Uh, I do. Yeah, I started off uh, in the building I'm in at about 3,500 square feet. Um, I ended up buying the building with a partner, uh, and then I thought, hey, let's uh, let everybody else pay my rent. So we took a smaller bite of the building. The building itself was like I don't know, fourteen, fifteen thousand square feet. Uh, so we ended up putting tenants in different spots, and I took a smaller little chunk. So I went from 3,500 square feet to about 2,200 square feet. Uh, a lot of stuff jammed in there, but, yeah, I mean, it's still not a small shot by any means. Yeah, I was really impressed when I went in, and I seen the ovens and then all the equipment and everything. And, you know, the thing that really shocked me was how clean the shop was. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this guy must be so anal retentive. <laughs> you could almost eat off the floor in your shop. Well, you remember what I told you when you walked in the shop area itself. It was like, don't mind the mess. Yeah, and, right. And, that, and that, that mess was driving me crazy. So this guy's got labels on everything. <laughs> Everything is organized. It's labeled like you can eat off the workbenches. Like it's ridiculous. There is no exaggeration here. It really does look that way. His dad was a sergeant major. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or- organization is vital in my life. Do you yell at people for getting on your grass? Uh, no, because I now I get on my own grass when I want. <laughs> right. I, even, I even throw cigarette butts in it. Rebel, I'm like, ah. rebel. He's, he's, Fuck you, man. <laughs> he's lying. He has a special little catch thing for cigarettes yeah. outside of his shop. Yeah, I do. You're yeah. Right. I imagine I'd probably get tackled if I threw one in the fucking parking lot. I have told people to pick him up. I have done that. <laughs> pick that up. Hey, come here, you. <laughs> So I, I've, nice hand. I've continued to go down the, the rabbit hole of your website here and look at your laser laser engraving, which is absolutely phenomenal. How do you price out something like that? Like, how do you even quote stuff like that? So laser work is all about time. How much time is it going to take for us to develop the art? And then how much time is it going to take to actually execute that art on that substrate? Uh, laser work is very difficult to price. And it comes with time and knowledge of those two main indicators of time and and execution so like this bond arms here that you did the, mm-hmm. the dual shot what kind of time frame would that even take because the the detail that that thing it <laughs> did is in, it's insane it is insane uh the art itself that took us about 40 hours of art development to to get it right and then the execution the first time was about 25 to 30 hours um now we can recreate that because that 
well, done. Yeah, yeah a lot of that <laughs> work done. has been done. Right. Uh, but I usually don't change my pricing schedule for that. Uh, if, if somebody wants something exactly the same as something I've done before, I can discount it a little bit. But unfortunately, you're still paying for my knowledge and my time. Oh, absolutely. And that knowledge should. and time, as they should, took a long time to develop it. Like right now, you got that DE pulled up, the Desert Eagle. Uh, that Beagle was a hell of a project. Uh, we literally engraved that from muzzle all the way to hammer and then wrapped it down onto the frame. Uh, that one has got about 60 hours of art in it with about 20 hours of execution. <clears throat> so... So what was the price tag on that? It was not cheap. So. <laughs> it was not cheap. Uh, Are we talking two, three grand? That gun was right around two grand. Yeah. You know, when anybody balks at that, I'd just challenge them. I'd be like, find look it what cheaper. Look what you'd pay for a tattoo. Yep, yep. absolutely. Oh, that many hours. Oh, yeah. it's the same. Absolutely. Same thing. Like, it's actually probably cheaper with that many hours. Yeah, right. it is. Right. Yeah, it is. Well, right. that's one of my biggest complaints about society right now is. You know, with the invention of technology and apps and everything, it is e-commerce has drove down the price of everything so much, and nobody wants to pay what I consider to be reasonable prices for anything. And yet, everybody wants to make the wages, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to make more money, but nobody wants to pay anyone to do the work. Yep. And it's like at some point you realize it takes time, effort, and energy to custom create things well, or you, to do something of any type of quality. I right. think uh, – so I've talked about it on here before a little bit, but Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, um, he talks about outsourcing and what to outsource, like how to batch emails, how to maximize your own efficiencies. Um, and there's a lot of stuff you can pay a ver- an assistant – who's in Singapore, a company or whatever to do or for scheduling or, you know, pick whatever. It's a good book, but there are certain things. And I think for entrepreneurs, it's finding the things that locally can't be replicated to, uh, figure out where you can make your money. Oh, absolutely. And I'll be the first one to tell you, I do sub out some of my stuff on the, the apparel side of the house. So strategic stitch was a new company I created in January. Uh, as, as Anthony knows. Um, but I found it very, very quickly on that if I sub my digitizing out to yep. India, Pakistan, China, whoever, uh, I could spend more time actually growing the business right. and doing things that actually employ more people. So a perfect example is a digitized logo uh, through the people I use now. And I don't mind if anybody hears this. It's $7 is what I pay. That's pretty good. I pay seven dollars to a to a Pakistani. I usually have it done within twelve hours, and it's right the first time. I quoted the same job <clears throat> in America, and you guys know I love this country and I love who we are and what we stand for. But the exact same logo was going to be forty five dollars. Mm-hmm. It was going to take two weeks. And I probably was going to have revisions. Well, that's exactly how my dad ended up being forced into retirement. My dad was a tool and die maker for Willard Home Products, which is based out or was based out of St. Louis. The EPA fixed that. Um, but the EPA had changed the law. So Willard Home Products does most of the home good stuff like potpourri and things like that. My dad was actually the first person in the world. 
he built the machine that ties the bows on the potpourri bags. <laughs> and the reason why they did that is they used to have a room full of like four or 500 workers and the corporal tunnel claims children because their fingers are small. Yeah. And it, <laughs> well, that was here in St. Louis. And so the, uh, but what happened was is all the corporal tunnel claims from people just tying bags over and over and over and over and over and over again. So they tasked him with building the machine that ties the bows on the bag. So when you go to Walmart and you see a bow tied around a potpourri bag, that was my father that invented that machine. Okay, and Willard Home Products is most likely the one that produces that potpourri. And they do toiletry stuff and a bunch of other things. But uh, he was the head tool and die maker, and he used to work for McDonnell Douglas back in the day, and he was a lead on the F-15 project, and he did, like, the rib wings. Like, I'd come home from school, and, and uh, in my garage would be, like, rib-plated F-15 parts and all this stuff <laughs> that he cool. would be that he'd be building. And, he, oh, man, I got to do some really cool stuff with my dad as a kid. But... Um, when uh, Willard Home, they had actually, the EPA passed a law where the main ingredient that goes into mothballs and potpourri could no longer be shipped through the United States. So they had to start shipping it from Canada down because it couldn't go through California and it would always come in at a California port. And it increased the cost so much for the company that the company went to China. And when the company went to China, um, the Chinese government basically gave them land, a factory, had trained all of their workers and had, you know, bought all the CNC machines and everything that they needed and just says, here, please come here. And then they tasked my dad with building this wire hanger system. And uh, I don't know what it was in application for. I just know that it was a wire hanger system. And uh, my, they tasked him with that on a Friday. And then the following week, he went into work, and then he called to source the goods and to come up with the design and how to plan it. And about the end of the week, when he was about ready to get started on the project, he comes into the work, and he's got a box sitting on his desk. They had tasked the Chinese plant with the exact same thing at the same time that they did him they were able to produce it ship it have it on his desk before he could even get the quote back for the cost and then the entire product cost including materials was just was cheaper than he could just get the materials for sure and so they told him they they called him into the office and they said uh you know they were like uh, you just need to go ahead and retire <laughs> why don't you go ahead and put in your two weeks wow. we're done with you and, and and that's a sad reality. It that is. It's so hard to compete against that because they're not paying the same labor. Well, they're not bound by red tape either. No, and and they're and you know that's the difference. You know, Willard Home Products in St. Louis had three CNC machines at the time, and I think my dad told me they were about a hundred thousand dollar each. And um, when they moved to the Chinese plant, they had given them like sixteen machines and didn't charge the company at all. Just 16 machines on site, and their ability to be able to produce and to do things was at such a larger scale, and there was no way that we could compete. And what yeah. chunk of that did China get? <laughs> well, you know, I, I can't, Some listening souls. audience, don't quote me on this because I'm not sure, but I am under the impression that when you go to China, the Chinese government owns a portion of that business every at that business. point. Mm -hmm. Every so single business. So that's part of the handshake deal. It's like we yep. get ownership of your business and then in, in turn you get all of these things right. and that's communism and, yeah and you know the the downside is 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 where i think it's changed is the quality of the work is no longer suspect 
Sure. You know, these people are highly trained. They're engineers with degrees. You know, that's one of our biggest imports right now is PhDs, right? And we are importing more PhDs from around the world than anyone else. And uh, the most of the technological advancements that we see in the United States now is a result of people that we have imported from other countries to work here to, to you know, aerospace programs, everything like that. That is our, uh, most of our medical field. That is imported PhDs. Because we don't and focus on STEM. Well, and it's the other side to that is, too, when you look at the cost of education, you know, you come here in the United States and you want to get a Ph.D., you know, you're looking anywhere between 100000 to 400000 dollars for your degree. Right. You know, you are in China. You can get that same degree for 20 grand and you're not loaded down with debt. And then you come here and, you know, you you're have the paid. same training, the same mm-hmm. skills and for the same pay or even less pay because you're not crippled with debt. Then you have that ability. That's yeah, because it's been artificially inflated to the just point of complete ridiculous. Well, that's a conversation well, for the another educational podcast, system. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's a whole other podcast. We can talk about the, the, the whole educational system. And we how, have a little bit. <laughs> well, how and, that's nothing and but thankfully, big business. Why don't we just talk about how things get deep really fast? This oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Right here. Yeah, Touche. <laughs> <laughs> that's a thing. Well, Rattle you know, I don't, I don't feel bad, you know, and I'm a big supporter of local business and I'm a big supporter of American business. Mm-hmm. But, you know, depending on what you're outsourcing, the I, I'm still maybe, and I'm probably going to lose some of the, the listening audience, I'm still a globalist to some degree because even though you're getting these things cheaper in other countries, you're still paying them a good wage Absolutely. in that country. You're still contributing to someone's family. You're still allowing them to live a good life that they wouldn't otherwise have. So it may be less wage than what we get here, but in proportion, it's not that different. No, but I agree. it's also the reason why I've taken the, the stance of... I, even if I have to pay more, I will choose to buy products that are locally built or locally produced. I'll do things to yep. make sure that – because to me, as a local business owner, it's about providing a lifestyle for someone else. It's about giving back, and, and I want to know that that person can feed their family. I don't need the cheapest product. I want to know that I'm giving back in a way that's supporting the people because I want people to support me. Well, and, and, and to, to jump on that too, the – the idea behind why I sub that specific work out is if I can have someone do it at a fraction of the cost, I can pass that savings on to my client and also turn that project exponentially quicker. Right. So if I pay someone in Ohio to do something that takes two weeks, my customer now has to wait two weeks. Now they also have to pay more because that's a pass-through cost. I'm literally going to pass that on to the consumer Right. because why should I have to eat that? Right? That's that's business. You got to keep your doors open. I got to keep my doors open. I have overhead. I have families to feed too. So if I can save money on something so mundane as as digitizing, then great. The customer is going to get their product quicker. They're going to be happier. Everybody's happy. Well, like I think too is your competition's probably doing the same thing. So if you're going to oh, have yeah. the two week turnaround, but they're getting 24 turnaround, you just lost a customer. Oh, yeah. Times however many customers exactly. you Exactly. And then you lose employees. Absolutely. And so, you don't keep your lights It's on. a snowball thing. <laughs> so speaking of competition, um, going back to Four Bush WRS, in the beginning, you did zero competition. You were kind of a... You were an early adopter to that technology, and so you came in. Um, How have you seen that competition change over the years, and how has that impacted your business? Oh, the landscape has changed exponentially. I mean, it's just gotten crazy. Back back when I started 14 years ago, you're right. I was there wasn't a lot of us doing this. So 
we could name our price and we could take our own time and you know we could do what we want. I was always fair with my pricing and my turnaround times. I think that's one thing that that set me apart from a lot of my competition then and now. Uh, but throughout the years, I've seen just massive changes in that landscape. Uh, people popping up in their basement, doing it under the table, uh, other businesses growing, and and on and on and on. Uh, so while I was at the top of our game, you know, back at the beginning, with the massive influx of all the new people doing it, uh, that's unfortunately degraded some. So now I'm fighting against a lot of other people that have the same overhead, that have all these other things, but they're they're newer and they're fresher. So it's 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 the the game of owning your own business it's always evolving and always keeping your brand relevant and how do we do that how do we do that whenever you got five guys in within a 10 mile radius that are popping up in their garage and you know you do that by quality control fair pricing and honest communication you know it's like when we when i was a six tactical and we started the conversation i had was how are we going to be different how to not just be another gun yep. store the same way and you know there's things we did and whatever and everybody well everybody around here when you first came in it was like wow this this is a different thing kind of you know um and i think that evolution has to continue and that's where people it's that stillness is death thing man you know what i mean you just got to keep evolving and keep changing oh yeah evolve if you don't evolve or if you don't if you don't evolve you die in small business especially you got to always be evolving and that's not necessarily being cutting edge even though we were cutting edge for a while and then other people got cutting edge i was one of the first guys to incorporate laser engraving and seracoding in 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 the country um but now you've got guys that are doing it just as well as i am if not better and that's great you know but how do i as a business owner change with the ever-changing landscape so what would you describe as your biggest threat to that particular industry is it competition or is it something else um i don't know i think that's probably a a double-edged sword in a lot of different ways you know you've got a lot of government issues right now especially in the firearms industry uh you've got a an economy i don't care what they say that's in in my opinion a recession it's certainly worse now than it was two years ago uh that's abundantly clear every time you go to the grocery store or every time you stop and get gas um i don't care what the news tells you or what anybody else tells you i see it in my wallet i see it in my pocketbook and so do my consumers you know back in the day it was nothing no big deal to drop 200 dollars on embellishing your firearm or changing it or making it cooler with the added benefits of cerakote you know the protective benefits and so on and so forth but now that 200 dollars one i should be charging more because my prices haven't changed with inflation I'm taking that hit for my consumers. But now, instead of them spending that $200, they're going to spend that $200 on their electric bill or on the gas, gas that's eggs. $3 more a gallon. Eggs. Eggs. I mean, who would have ever friggin' thought get eggs would be like they are? Oh, yeah, that's Bacon, ridiculous. meat. You know, yeah. I can't fault my consumers or my customers for that. You know, if I had a choice between making my Glock look cool or feeding my family... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed my family. It's a no-brainer at that point. It's a no-brainer. Well, and is that why you made the decision? And I guess I'm, I'm asking this for our listening audience, especially anybody out there that wants to be an entrepreneur. You know, you went from firearms to apparel, <laughs> right? So what was, the, what was your driver behind that? It's just one simple word, diversification. Mm, I love that's, that word. That's it. 
differentiates yourself from everyone else. I have to diversify my revenue streams because if the ATF walked in today and said, okay, let me look at this, and I had a number wrong, and they decided to, yep. to pull my FFL, which they have been known to do here lately with the administration that we're in. A couple hundred times, a percentage increase of FFL revocations in the last uh, year. Yeah, Although there's a major lawsuit, FPC just dropped yes. on them for that. Yes, absolutely. But revocations, if you look at the, the, the stats, are, like you said, they're up exponentially. So what if the ATF walked in or whatever walked in and shut me down? I've always tried to diversify our offerings outside of the firearms industry. However, comma, that's really hard to do, uh, but it doesn't mean I haven't stopped. So I'm trying to get in different industries, you know, the uh, medical industry and aerospace industry and, and car industry and on and on and on. Because Cerakote's got channels in on, in all those areas. Have you looked at anything with any of the gov contracts? Do you have a cage code? Have you done any of that stuff? I've done all that stuff, but again, we get into some really wild stuff. Trust me. I got, <laughs> I got one. I yeah. dealt with bidding all that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. It's dicey in the barrier to entry and, oh. and the work it requires... Huge. And some of the shady things people do to get into it. Are you're, make, you're making pennies. Is what oh, yeah. It is. yeah. You yeah, have absolutely. to yeah, initially. You have to initially. Well, and the threat of government regulation is in a lot of industries. It's in my industry as well. And, you know, and I tell people all that is, you know, um, we've spent 30 years building what we have built. And all it would take is one law change or, you know, a handful of other changes that could completely. It's like, you know, all of a sudden one day I have a career and then I don't. Yep. Well, anything and any, that's a danger. Any, any industry that's politically fluid is problematic. Oh, 100. percent And in my industry specifically, it, it, it walks the edge of, of a lot of different areas of the political climate issues, as well as socio-economical issues, and so on and so forth. So, diversifying the channels is is paramount. I've been able to do fairly well because we don't just do guns. We, we do some aerospace stuff, we do some medical stuff, both on the engraving side and the coding side. Now my portfolio is, is, is vastly immersed inside the firearms industry and I would love that to change. Uh, but to answer your original question, the reason Strategic Stitch was born was to provide for my family if something was to happen. And, and it's a very Possible. possible thing that could happen. Yeah, it's possible. Right. You know, well, I commend you on that. I think that was a very good business decision. I, I, w I will say that based <clears throat> on specifically the niche you're in, I think you're probably the most insulated in the firearms industry yeah, as I far agree. as FFLs go. Uh, especially with, well, it's really interesting with the frames and receiver thing that just recently <laughs> happened. God, but that's a mess. It is, but you, they created... They you created, want to tell they, the they audience gave, They gave that? me a revenue so channel. So the... FFL or the ATF, sorry, has because of political things been directed to go beyond their scope to basically create law through regulation through something called Chevron deference, um, and essentially it's it's taking what wasn't specified in law and creating law administratively or uh, bureaucratically. The, they made a decision, everybody's heard of ghost guns, right? Everybody <laughs> throws out this nebulous term because of something that literally America hasn't been allowed to do since before America was America, or, you know... The inception of firearms. The inception of yeah, our, our country. <laughs> um, and, like, Polymer 80, they filed a lawsuit with the Firearms Policy Coalition, and the Biden administration 
the director, the interim director of the ATF prior when the administration was taking over they're like what are two things we could do and the direct the interim director of the atf at the time said we could do a decision on firearms braces and we could get rid of 80 percent kits which are basically there is a framer receiver that is only finished to 80 percent and there's typically a jig or some kind of mechanism where the individual consumer can finish that and there's no serialization, there's no 4473 required, nothing. Uh, well, recently, basically that was slapped, that rule was slapped down at a Supreme Court, I think, level. Which, which part? The frame and receiver decision. Basically, the ATF was told they lost. They, they published the rule, they made the decision, the lawsuits happened, and they were told... Uh, no, it was the Fifth Circuit. Yeah, Fifth Circuit. And this basically said you can't do that. Fifth Circuit, yeah. they, they came out and said, you're operating well beyond your scope of authority. There's criminal penalty for this. No, this rule isn't going to happen. We don't care what the president says. His job's to faithfully execute. That's not what's happened. Now, what reason would somebody have to want a gun without a serial number? It's more to make it yourself. Yeah. And it has to do with freedom. I, I've talked about it before but it's well regulated everybody looks at the well regulated part of the second amendment has been used abused and bastardized and when the Bruin decision came out uh, last year last year they basically said anything having to do with the second amendment needs to be consistent with the text history and tradition of the second amendment at the time of ratification of the constitution at the time the Constitution was ratified, there was absolutely nothing that says individuals could not make their arms for personal use. Nothing. You could make your own gun. Well, in the world of 3D printers, you know, there's a it's lot of going people to happen out there that are well, 3D that, the, printing the, guns and The, the change else. of law, in air quotes again, encompasses 3D printing as well. Okay, so yeah. it takes into account of that new technology. Yeah, it, correct. It, it does, but there's it, it's so fast... It's almost a stupid law. It's completely it's completely well, it's not even a law, just a caveat. It's a rule. It's a it's, it's a, a rule. rule. It's not even a but law. But it carries the weight of law Correct. and that was the problem. Yep, that's 100%. So the problem. Chevron deference, if anything, if any rule is to carry the weight of law, like tie goes to the individual, not the government. Now, as a consumer, not somebody that's really into the legal part of this debate, you know, I find a lot of these gun laws kind of confusing because I feel like that what they've done to ammo and the the shortages and the increase in cost in ammunition, even if you have a weapon, it's almost impossible to be able to afford to use it. Well, I'll, I'll jump on that one. You and I've talked about yeah, this on the, Facebook. The, the <laughs> easiest way to, <clears throat> to get what you want is to, to circumvent and go around the main issue. The main issue, obviously, with the left is... The firearms themselves, they want to get rid of them, nobody should own them, blah, blah, blah. Well, we, we have a very strong Second Amendment. Gun ownership is not going anywhere. They know they're not going to get it. So how do you do that? Well, you, you tax and you penalize the people that sell those things hard, and then you create other rules and regulations to make purchase of the things that you need to make that firearm actually function. You make use expensive. and sale prohibitive exactly you find the way to make them prohibitive so even with uh 
if you want to suppress, a lot of people get arms to train, right? Like we used to go to the range once a week at a minimum, 250 mm-hmm. rounds. If the cost of ammunition, ammunition is inflated through import of pick, brass, metals, primers. brass, primers. Well, even with primers, there is still, I th- find it funny, like 410 shotgun shells, for instance, are still incredibly difficult yep. to find. The reason why is because there was a primer shortage and ammo manufacturers have had to decide what are we going to produce and they're still producing primarily NATO calibers, mm-hmm. 9mm, 5.56, 308, things like that. <coughs> and something as stupid as a 410 shotgun shell, they're not making it. You can find 12 gauge. Well, I know that. Day. Well, why would you make why would you have a line on the ammunition making hundreds of thousands of 410 shells? that don't sell as quickly as a nine millimeter round but that's literally selling but, the minute it rolls off the but line. But then the supply and demand, if you look at the cost for a box oh. of four. Oh, when I, that's what I was getting ready to oh, say. When nuts. I first got a, I bought my first nuts. handgun when I got, when I finally like got out of service yeah. and yeah. that was back in 2004, mid 2003, 2004. And, uh, it was a 40 caliber. And I remember I could go down to Walmart and I could buy a box of a hundred rounds, hollow points for a, about 18 maybe 19 dollars and uh now i think that you know a box of 50 is probably closer to like 40 bucks mm-hmm. right and so you know 100 rounds cost you upwards of cost of 60 to 80 depending on the brand that you get and you know and and, and what it did for somebody like me is yeah, i don't shoot my guns you know and until i went to the range with sarge most of my guns just sit in a safe and they were there for show you know worst case scenario and and i think that that is the biggest disservice because if you're going if I make any argument about gun laws or, or legislation or regulation it's I believe there are too many people out there that own firearms that are not adequately trained in them and you take away the ability to be trained or to even be competent with that firearm and I believe that poses a larger danger than just having the possession of the firearm itself and I, sure. I go back to when we had on John the the cop when we talked about the Second Amendment. Congress has a responsibility written into the Constitution to arm, equip, and to train the militia. Well-regulated meant to make regular, well-functioning just like a watch. Part of that was to be armed, trained, and equipped. We used to have firearms training as something people were mandated to do in school. Basic firearm safety. You look at some of the countries we've talked about, the Nordic countries, or some of them were like uh, Sweden. They're issued a arm, even when they leave service. Yeah, you're you're given that arm. You don't just get to do whatever you want. You are required as a social responsibility to qualify with it at least once a year, I believe, or to attend some kind of training course, and that will cover you. There is a it, and that is the the drill the armed, equipped, and trained part of that. Uh, Firearms culture, regardless, is written into our Constitution. Now, we could make arguments for ratifying that, but uh, it gets real interesting when you start having the natural rights conversation as part of that. But it may be inconvenient for some, but that's the way it's supposed to be. It's not done in practice, but that's how it's supposed to be. Well, and the training is grossly overlooked. I mean, I took the concealed, uh, <laughs> you know, concealed carry course, right, to get Mike in that, and then the other firearms training that I had prior to that was in the military, and uh, 
I don't consider myself to really have received any true training until I started training with you. And then when I started to learn things like recoil management and, and then some of the other concepts that you were able to teach me. And, and that was like, wow, that was, that was really a, a huge shift in how I viewed the use of firearms and how, what actually meant adequately trained. Because up until that point, if you would ask me, I would have felt like, well, yeah, I was adequately trained and I am absolutely not. And I would still say now, you know, only doing that for a short time, it would take a lot more training from for me to consider myself, you know, competent. You know, there's a big difference than when you look at uh, what your average person. You know, I, I, I not to pick on my mom at all, but you know, she's an, an uh, a seniored woman, <laughs> and who carries a firearm for defense. Uh, but there's, she really has no right to, to be able to use that weapon and her ability probably in the event of something unfortunate happening, uh, you know, it would probably end up being used against her or it would most likely result in hurting someone else. Well, I'll quickly jump on one word that stuck out from that, that, that statement was you, you used the word right. Yeah, I was about she to has that. every right well, to defend herself with or without correction. with or without but training. But she may not have the ability. Yeah, the, ability the ability is what she correct. Does. The right. ability is the ability would be lacking. But the right to protect yourself is one hundred percent. There's there. definitely a false sense of confidence for individuals. Oh yeah, that, most people. Yeah, most. Right. <laughs> most. They believe yeah. that by having a firearm that they're somehow sure. adequately capable it, of defending themselves. Well, and you you could even go farther and and, and push that across different different lines of thinking just because you have a fire extinguisher doesn't make you a fireman exactly you can't put a fire out without a fire extinguisher if you don't know how to do it listen it, you, it, it goes across a lot of different you may ways. buy a sand viper that doesn't make you john wick <laughs> so i had an old friend of mine his wife was very anti-gun and she wanted to she was always against me carrying around her and her family i'm like you don't understand that i'm carrying this for your protection not just my own well when the colorado movie shooting happened way back when she started coming in. It's like, hey, I want to get my CCW. I want to start carrying. I'm like, that's great. But why? And she's like, well, I'll protect myself. And I looked her dead in the eye. I go, do you have the ability to pull the trigger on somebody in somebody's life that's intermittently, purposefully trying to harm you or your family in that exact second? Well, I'm like, too late. You're already dead. So I'm like, this is, not a, this is not a fad. This is a responsibility. This, this mm -hmm. is what I'll say. And it culture. The cultural issue is the biggest problem, and I'll. I think I might have said this on the podcast before. I can't remember, but uh, I, I was listening to a podcast years ago. I was, I think, I was stationed in Indiana doing ACRC work, and um, I had a guy. He had he was writing a book on the Great Depression, and uh, he was interviewing a guy who had been a kid during the Great Depression, and. The guy's father had worked as an editor for a newspaper. They lived in town. I don't remember, like some small town newspaper, whatever. Well, the dad was very, very uh, conservative. We're not taking a handout from anybody. And at the time, it's funny because we look at handouts now. The government <laughs> handouts were seeds. Right, right. That was, your, that was your handout. Well, the kid, the dude's mom had written into the paper and she didn't know it was kind of like one of these dear abby type uh things she didn't realize that the it was an acronym and her husband the editor of the paper actually it was his column and the acronym was her name and the kids names like it was like i can't remember but 
she had asked for like look i just need a she was requesting a winter coat for her son to help with his chores and the guy writing the book who's interviewing this uh man at the time who had been a little kid he was like well what were your chores and he goes well you know we lived in the city but meat was in short supply and everything else and he was 10 every day he would get on the bus line it was five cents to ride the bus but the guy in the bus knew him so he usually let him ride it for free he would grab a 410 shotgun and a 22 rifle and he would ride it out all the way to the furthest stop of the bus line and he would go hunt in the fields for small game like birds like just small stuff because the deer population was decimated and like the first the whitetail population was like done in north america you had a 10 year old riding public transit with two (laughs) firearms and was trusted to safely do that and was going out hunting on their own it is a different it was a different totally culture the and the child because mom and dad obviously were busy doing other things they were entrusted to do that to use a tool to go affect an outcome right and there's a lot to that whole story but in what we're talking about that's a huge takeaway it's cultural right that's the problem yeah well, social evolution is a thing as well. Sure. So, but we've mentioned two things here. We talked about firearms. We talked about hunting. Do you hunt, sir? Oh, I'm an avid hunter. Oh, let's talk about that. What's your favorite game to hunt? Well, I mean, I'm a Missouri resident, so it has to be whitetail. Right? How long have you been hunting? Uh, so, I guess the first time I ever hunted was with Dad, and I was seven. Six. I was six. We started with rabbits and squirrels, and by eight, I was hunting deer. Fair. So you've killed a fair amount of deer in your life. I have. I'm I'm not a horn hunter. I hunt for meat, Uh, so it's not necessarily if it's brown, it's down. Uh, But we, I, I definitely want to take what I eat. Now, do you hunt just here locally in Missouri, or do you travel to hunt as well? Uh, I've traveled to hunt pigs and other game, small game things like that, birds, Um, and then I've traveled to fish but never to actually hunt how was the boar hunting um <laughs> missouri boar hunting is terrible uh but we went to a, a hunt down in texas and that was that was a good time that was a lot of fun uh, i actually got st- showed up by a 12 year old with a bow oh fair <laughs> so okay so yeah, boar kid hunting was, kid had no fucks He's boar just hunting like, in texas is like on my bucket list so tell yeah. me about that yeah this, how did that experience it go? was a it was a like a paid guide hunt uh, we showed up and they had little hooches for us to stay in and they would take us out and we would look for for pigs and we found ones that we liked we'd we'd shoot at them and then we'd run them down and then they would process them for us so it wasn't like the the great depression times you know like we now, just heard did about. you do it with dogs? Did they did they uh, run no, the dogs? No, this was just a guided hunt. We would go and glass and look and find signs typical to, to any type of ground hunt animal. Um, then we would find them and we'd sneak up on them and and slack them. So in know? Texas, I guess their population is relatively large. Yeah, and, and that was true Razorbacks out. too. So it was like a true Razorback pig, uh, big boar. The one that I killed was a was a boar, and he was. 240 roughly dressed out uh so lots of meat um but again i got stood up by a 12 year old kid with a bow so how did that taste 
Uh, it was good, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard mixed reviews on that. Some people say they like it and some yeah. people don't. It's definitely a different taste. Uh, and then I went I went a couple years ago to a, a hunt in Louisiana. We hunted pigs down there, but it was a high fence hunt. See, I got into boar hunting because, uh, Area and I haven't hunting. been yet, but I, I used to... to I have a large affinity for the Dogo Argentino. Mm. And so in Argentina, they use the Dogos to hunt boar. And how they do it in Argentina, traditionally hunting boars, they get these group of dogs, and they run down the boar. They'll, they'll trap the boar, and then they usually end up in some type of skirmish, yeah, and they'll yeah. hold the boar down. And then the guy will come up, and he will jump on the back of the boar, and he will cut its throat with a knife. And I don't think I have the cojones for that. <laughs> so well, like I said, the 12-year-old kid that showed up and killed a bigger boar did it with a bow. I shot mine with a 308 from 60 yards away. And uh, he still didn't die. And I hit him square in the friggin' heart. And he ended up catching a, a, a bullet fragment that spined him. So he rolled down the hill and then flopped around for a while. I just kept shooting him because I'm like, I'm not getting close to that. Right. This 12-year-old with a bow and arrow went and stuck a bigger pig it came back and was just like, meh. You want to hear yeah. a story about a kid making you feel like a punk. So I'm in Hawaii, <laughs> and there was this uh, reef. That night we went uh, spearfishing. It was these weird channels cut into these reefs. So your belly crawling almost. Your body's barely out of them, but they're like 10, 12 foot down. You could go get all kinds of stuff. Well, I got there early. I'm out during the day. I just got my little sling spear, and uh, I watched a uh, octopus go, right? And I go, and I... I like oh hell yeah because they're you know the camo right, right right like they're predators right and it goes but i see where it goes i go over i score that i get this thing and it climbs down my sling spirits wrapped around my hand i stand up out of this water and there being these two local kids who were there who were just fishing and this thing's like climbed down my spirits wrapped around my hand and i've got my dive knife and i'm just shanking this thing like i'm in prison <laughs> and it's not dying and the kid this little kid was like taco taco and that's what the locals call octopus i'm like yeah taco so, so uh <laughs> he goes like this and i'm like yeah and i hold my hand over and he grabs this octopus and he like half pulls it off my arm but it's still hanging on and he grabs it and he just bites it right between the eyes and it just goes limp and falls off my arm and i'm like get the fuck out of here <laughs> so later that night we're diving on this reef i'm down there with a light i almost had this big uh barracuda thing come up in my face scared the shit out of me and i pop up and at the time one of my stepkids is out there and i hear him going what the fuck freaking out he's got this octopus wrapped around his arm <laughs> and i and they weren't there earlier so i like come walking on the reef walking up to him like are you good he goes this thing i can't get off and like give me that thing and i just bit it in the head and he was like that was gangster <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea the same shit happened to me hours before uh -huh. <laughs> so what's the largest game that you've hunted um uh, i mean i guess whitetail technically i've been asked to mule deer hunt and i've got family and Colorado, California, West Coast. I've been asked to do a lot of different hunting excursions. Uh, again, it goes back to travel as a child, never around, and then uh, grinding as a business owner. I just never took the time. So um, what's your best hunting story then? I really don't have a great hunting story, guys. Mm, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty vanilla hunter. I, I literally hunt for, for meat, and that's it. I, you see it, you shoot I it. I see it, I shoot it. it birds, birds. Uh, Pigs, deer. That's yeah, about that's it. That's it. Huh? I mean, yeah, if I, I see it, I kill it, I eat it. See, the captain over here is a big hunter. So that's what he does. He's like a pro. I know I know some pros. 
I know some guys that get paid to hunt. I mean, if you want to do some sketchy shit, we can go bear hunt in Pennsylvania if you want. Hunt well, on the ground. We might be able to go bear hunt in Festus. Yeah, no <laughs> shit. Or St. Jen. <laughs> hey, hey, yeah. Except that one in Festus got whacked by a car in 55. Elliot, uh, <laughs> Elliot drew lottery. Yeah. Oh, yeah? For the bear hunt? No, yeah. Really? Black bear? Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I've always wanted to go bear hunting, but then at the same time, I've heard that the meat tastes terrible. I've heard and, no, I, and I really have an issue that. with killing like anything that I don't plan on eating. Like I, I, just I don't know, man. I, I'd probably just kill a bear meat. just to kill it. I've I've had bear, I mean, I've, I've had bear sausage. I want the, I want the rug. Great. I don't know. There's an ethical thing there. I think for you have me. to do it with a knife or a spear. You can't if you're just gonna go kill a bear to kill a bear. I, we can we can do it with a bow. Mm. I mean, okay, I, a bow I wanna, can do. But I want to yeah, get a deer a this year. Get the sinew. Make my own bow, and then take a deer the next year with a primitive bow. Yeah, I mean, killing something that can kill me—that's cool. As long as I got backup, right? Yeah. yeah. I've done that. Well, that's like my favorite my <laughs> favorite lot. story. Well, that's I called was, Afghanistan, brother. <laughs> I'm going to date myself even more, but I was reading, uh, I think it was, uh, oh, it just slipped my mind. Uh, there used to be these books that they keep at doctor's offices. They had all kinds of stories and Reader's Digest. Oh, remember that? God, yeah. yeah, I remember that. And I was listening, I was reading this uh, story about this guy bear hunting and he was out there with a the bow and... Uh, Anyway, I'll fast forward to the end of the story. He's sitting in this little clearing, and he's got grass all around him and about 10, 15 yards away. And he's hunting brown bear up in Alaska. And um, he talks about, like, you know, he got the whiff of the bear, and he could smell it, and, you know, he could see it coming around. And, he, and so this grass is so tall that this bear has completely disappeared on the other side of the grass. Nope. And he's in a clearing. <laughs> and, you know, he ends this story by this bear popping through the grass, and he draws back and shoots this bear. And I'm thinking, fuck this. Yeah, Dude, have you there seen the Leonardo no DiCaprio way. movie? No. no. <laughs> so, like, there is no way I'm doing some shit like that my, like, dad, my dad told me this story when we were in oregon and i was a kid he worked for a lumber company and had this buddy named ray cross who's a traditional bow hunter and at the time wolves were still bountied like you could turn in ears right apparently he was out tracking uh these wolf tracks and he's going through the you know old growth forest in Oregon or whatever and he came up over this rise and this bear was like right there like oh shit and he already had an arrow on the string and he just pulled back instinctively fired because this thing reared up they scared each other apparently whatever well he shot it through the neck and he thought I'm screwed Mm. and he sat there and this thing was just still standing straight up growling at him not doing anything just growling at him and he was like what the hell he put another arrow on the string he shot again finally it fell over dead when he dressed it out the first arrow he shot it through went through its neck severed its spinal cord yep nice he luckily paralyzed that motherfucker right so it's like when i got back from new mexico and i I told you that i had a nine mil for defense and And you were like like, you're an idiot and uh then you send me that video and those two guys are unloading on that brown bear two gentlemen with what were those no it was three three and those are what probably what 4570 or something they were huge oh no that was the water buffalo oh was it that water buffalo yeah so they got three dudes unloading on this water buffalo from like 20 30 yards with with african big game rifles big game rifles and this thing damn near killed all three of them like they were dipping and dodging and jumping and one was shooting and the other one was rolling out of the way (laughs) and he was like you need a bigger gun i was like no shit (laughs) so the one video the one video uh a guy, he, he put one down with a Glock 10 mil. They were on a, they were tracking this bear. Somebody had shot it, and it charged three of them. One guy had a 45 ACP. The other guy had like a 357. He had a 10 mil Glock. 
They shot the bear 32 times, I want to say. He said he shot it like 16, like he emptied the mag on the Glock. But the fat was so thick on the bear, his 10 mil was the only rounds Mm. that got through, and he finally put it down. And it literally, all his rounds had gone in. All the 45 was caught in the fat. The 357, they hadn't been Magnum rounds. They were caught in the fat. I believe it. And that's why I told him, because I was like, think about how fast he the told bear me runs. 10 mil. Now, now think he, about no, no, no. that bear on a kilo of Coke. No, no, look, no. he told Jesus. me 10 mil. If you mil. haven't seen Cocaine Bear, you have to. He didn't yeah. say shit about 30 rounds. Great movie. No, no, no. Well, that's what I said. So I got six in my revolver. And well, I watched my, <laughs> my, my, my driveway's the last about, one's for you. My driveway's <laughs> about 100 yards long, and I was talking to a buddy of mine one day. And my dog had gotten out, and she was up by my mailbox. I was like, Luna, come here. And she got to me in like two seconds, and we were talking about bears charging. And she ran 100 yards in about two seconds. And I started thinking about it, and I was like, if that bear's charging you, like I told him, I'm going to get a 10 mil Glock with hard cast rounds, and I'm going to roll and special the shit out of that well, thing because yep. I want it running flat. That hot. was my philosophy. Yeah, so when we were out in New Mexico, I brought my, I brought a 357 Magnum with me, and then I had, he did what I said. And, <laughs> bring and, that damn Wesson. And then I, and then I had my uh, shadow systems with me. Now at camp, I kept the revolver at camp because that's where we were at, and we had black bear and we had mountain lion, and so I kept the revolver at camp. But when whenever we would leave to go hike or we'd go exploring, I chose to take the 9 mil because I thought 30 rounds, right? I, I wanted to be able to, like, have capacity because my biggest fear is, like, I'm going to run out of rounds, and I'm no speed loader when it comes to a revolver. So, you know, that was the decision I made. But, uh, yeah, now, now I'm rethinking that, and I'm in the hunt for a Glock 10 mil. So mm-hmm. that's going to be my next purchase. Well, and and then I'm going to take it to you, and you're going to make it fucking beautiful. We're going to make it a, a bear slayer. A bear slayer. That's what I'm that's in. That's the theme. The well, end that, of it has to be white. <laughs> so, well, you know, the go Reverend, ahead. The Reverend Engraved Glock. The Reverend Engraved mm-hmm. Glock. It'll be like a stoned apes theme. No, It'll be you, all need a, you need a cross on the... <laughs> on the... <laughs> yeah. the grip. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll have pay your penance written down the side of it. It'll be no. fucking amazing. Repent written on the Repent. slide. Repent. <laughs> yeah, so now that I'm, I'm getting into like wanting to start doing alternative methods for hunting, and so one of the things in a... An Adelaide? Well, that's exactly that what that's ex- and my stepdad said the same thing because I wanted to you know if you look out back I have a spear target and so I've been trying my hand at spear throwing because I'm where I hunt behind my house um, I don't have anything longer than about seven to fifteen yards in fact all of the deer that I've killed back there I've killed within about fifteen yards and so I thought you know if I can get that close because my first kill back there was a handgun kill. And, uh, and that was actually kind of a funny story because I hadn't hunted in the better part of 10 years and kind of just got out of hunting. My kids were little, and it comes down to like what you said, you know, uh, you know, time with family. And so I realized I was spending all this time out in the woods hunting when I could be spending time with my children, and then I didn't. And then when my kids finally got old enough, I made the decision the night before the opening day of gun season that I was going to go hunting again. And so I'm downstairs. I don't own one rifle. And the only one that I've got is my AR, and I hadn't sighted it in yet. So I'm, like, going through my gun collection, and I'm like, what do I have that I could go kill it? And so I found that my my dad had a – I didn't inherit it. It was gifted to me, this old Dan Weston. It's sitting on a shelf over there. I'll show it to you later. But uh, he had his Dan Weston 357 Magnum, and I thought, well, I know I can shoot that. That thing drills nails. 
And so I took it out back and I wasn't out there two hours and this deer come walking up broadside at about maybe 30, 40 yards tops in a, I kind of shot him. It wasn't really a clearing. It's not an area that I hunt anymore. I got just really lucky. And uh, <laughs> so, because I have never, I have never seen a deer in this space yeah, since he's then. out there and in a puffy coat. Yeah. Oh, no, legitimate. Beard so, oil. Uh, no, so, so this is really good. No, this is legitimate. So for all the years that I was into hunting, I was... I was definitely um, commercialized hunter. Yeah. I, I bought all the camo. Yeah. I did all the stuff, and I had all the you know the scents, and you know I listened all the videos. Well, then I had the opportunity to. Uh, my ex-wife is from Tennessee, and she's from the part of Tennessee that's in the mountains, right? So they're good old boys back there. And her dad and her brother used to always laugh at me because they would go out hunting in blue jeans mm-hmm. and a t-shirt, yep. and they would go red s- flannel. And her daddy, whack. her daddy used to tell me, he goes, "I just go out there and sit on the stump, and yep. when the deer walk by, I shoot it." So here I am. I've got no tree stands. I've got nothing, and so that's exactly what I did. I just had blue jeans and a hoodie on, and I took this magnum and I went out there and I found a nice tree and I felt like, okay, the tree was big enough to give me some cover. You know, you wouldn't be able to silhouette me on this tree. And I sit on the ground in the freaking cold and just sit there with no camo, no shit. Killed a deer within two hours, you know, and I was like, that completely changed all of the stuff that I do for hunting. I was of the same opinion. My dad was, was very adamant on there's ways to hunt correctly and humanely, and this is how you do it. Uh, but mind you, uh, my my main hunting excursion started in Kentucky, where my dad retired. So same thing. Uh, I thought hunting was one way until i started hunting with my new kentucky friends and i remember the first time i ever hunted with my backwoods kentucky buddy and his dad dad walked out there in blue jeans and a flannel shirt climbed up in a in a in a in a condo built in this tree with plywood (laughs) turned on a heater cracked open a bush light and started smoking cigarettes i'm like what are you doing he's like just sit there boy 40 minutes later, but boom kills the biggest buck I've ever seen oh, in my yeah. life. I break every hunting put, rule. Put the bud light or the bush light down, finish the smoke, said, let's go get it. Yeah. I don't hunt anything like I used to. And uh, like, that's one of the things like, uh, you know, people talk about decoys and deer hunting. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I'm a big turkey hunter. And so decoys are I used everything. to be. I got so, married in April. Bad out, idea. Yeah. Out there, uh, I have a little 3D target that I use for uh, my compound bow. And uh, it, this thing, in fact, I'll show you, it is all fucked up right now, okay? <laughs> Deer come by regularly and beat the shit out of this thing. It's it, it got beat so bad while I was on vacation to Tennessee that it is literally off the legs. The torso is on the ground. Something fucked it up. So I realized... I realized after having this deer out there all this time that I was like, you know, this doesn't seem to bother them at all. <laughs> and so the first buck that I killed this year, I was, I'm hunting next to this bedding area. And so here I am midday, I, I hunt the whole morning, shit doesn't happen. So I get out of the stand like 11, 11.30 and I come up here and I realize, well, I'm going to go out there and hunt the evening. And so what do I do? I grab this fucking decoy or this target. It's not even a decoy. It's just a 3D Glendale target. And I pick this thing up. And I walk it out there and I set it down. And I figure, worst case scenario, I'm not going to get anything, right? 
I'm out there for maybe an hour, and this buck J-hooks this thing, comes up over the creek, and dropped it. And I'm like, nobody will ever tell me this shit don't work. So he, he actually so, asked me, so I hold the decoy, I'm like, it's a fucking horrible idea, don't do it. <laughs> he does it anyway, and he's texting me. Like, I ain't seeing shit, I'm getting discouraged. Wrong, motherfucker. And it was like, right. he said, like, not seeing anything, getting discouraged, deer down. Like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> like, what the fuck did I just read? Are you, what do you mean, deer down? Like, what'd you get? You know, so we're... Firing back and forth, I'm like, all right, man, let's do it. Yeah, so now it's all um, it's game on, it's game on. Yeah, now they come up and they beat the shit out of my decoy, and it's all over. So yeah, I don't follow any of the rules anymore, and I don't spend thousands of dollars on hunting season. I don't buy yeah. the latest greatest camo. Well, you got it's a nice like, little honey hole that you didn't even know about. Oh yeah, man, I have a monster buck back there, the biggest one I've ever seen. Well, yeah, you're leaving a fuck buddy out there for him every day. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you what, I'd dress up like a deer if I could kill this motherfucker. My name is Buck. No. Yeah. Well, he, he's talking about this buck this night, and it's during bow season, and obviously when you hunt, you want to make an ethical shot. Yeah. And the way he's describing this, I'm like, I'd just shoot this motherfucker if I could even send an arrow Dude, in his direction. I'm sitting He's there. sending pictures of, like, Bass Pro World like class mounts. Like, Legit. It kind of looks like this. I'm like, motherfucker, pull so, the trigger. Here's, <laughs> so here's the story. I'm sitting, I'm sitting on my tree stand that I got overlooking this bedding area. And I'm out there in the morning, and uh, I see some movement. And I didn't realize what it was. And th and this is an old ag field that has grown up, and it's just a huge thicket now, okay? And it's everything is about maybe somewhere between three and six feet tall, and you can't walk through it. It's got channels, and so this is just a bedding area. And I'm hunting about maybe 30, 40 yards off of the field where I have a good line of sight, and I got a couple of corridors that they come over. And where I hunt, they cross the fence. And so it works so I don't have to, you know, uh, hunt this farmer's field and uh, so I'm sitting there and I I see this tree shake and I thought well it was squirrels or something like that and uh, and I look over and this thing lifts its head up and it's got this massive rack on it and I'm thinking oh my god you know and then a few seconds later it goes back down I'm on the phone with him and I'm like dude I think this thing's huge and so he's like all right he's like get out of the stand go real quietly don't disturb anything and leave and so i left and then i was like all right well i'm gonna go back there that evening so i get out there and i'm sitting there for about 30 40 minutes and uh i catch some movement and i look up and this deer pops its head up and then it starts to move around and it was like this eight pointer you know and and i'm like that is not as big as i remember and then i was thinking okay well deep buck fever right you know i, I was like i just exaggerated fishtail no big deal and then this deer is walking around inside this thicket about 35 yards from me and I just can't get a clear shot. And I'm staring at it the whole time. And the next thing you know, this tree starts moving again. And uh, I look over and I see this light brown coming through the tree. And I'm thinking, oh shit, this is a mountain lion. I was like, I'm getting ready to watch this deer get murked. Like, this is gonna be fucking awesome, you know? And so I'm getting all excited, and I'm, like, watching this, like, shit move around, and I, and I can't see anything. All I see is light brown and this big, like, uh, this tree in particular is probably 14 feet tall. It's not huge, but it's not small. And, uh, and it's shaking and moving, and then I'm trying to figure out, and I'm like, well, maybe it's, like, squirrels or something. Like, I really can't figure out, like, what's going on. And then all of a sudden, this deer gets up. And it is the biggest deer, short of a mule deer out in Colorado. It's the biggest thing I've ever seen. That deer bedded uh, down dude, and stayed there all day. He was able to get out 
and get back in without even with two of them. I believe it's, it. He's like, it's like like so, eleven thirty. Had to yeah. go to work. Like, what do I do? I'm like, I believe this guy. Mouse. This guy's like I a twelve pointer, and his rack is so big it spans at least a foot on each side of its ears. And it was it was huge. If I wouldn't have known it was a deer, I'd have thought it was an elk. And he dwarfed this eight pointer sitting next to him. Like in every it would it would be like putting a Labrador next to a Great Dane. I mean, he was so impossibly big. And he walked around me for a good thirty minutes. I had both of those deer within thirty yards, and I have all I have is a compound at that time. And I can't get a clean shot. Mm. I'm just watching. And and so and it's early in the season, it's September, and so what I'm thinking is, well, I'm not gonna jump this and fuck up. You know, because I don't want to ruin the rest of my season. I got gun season coming up, and and if I would have had a gun, I would have one hundred percent made that shot because I wasn't worried about it. And so uh, this goes through, this goes through, and then finally, you know, they they take off, and, and I lose my opportunity. And so I get on the phone with uh, with the captain, and he's like, "What? <laughs> what do you mean you didn't take a shot?" And I'm like, "Dude, no, no, you don't understand. Like, I'll have up an opportunity." And he's like. No. no, you won't. I have never seen that deer since. That is the you only won't. time I hunted the rest of the season. No, anything. Yeah, he's not. He's not on the area where that deer so was at. Mad. So it's not pressured. It's oh, not man. like it's. It's virgin area. Oh man. So, yeah. That deer is probably hanging on somebody else's wall right now. Absolutely. But that's why I call it hunting and not killing. That's right. I'll tell you what, next time, damn right I'm taking that shot. <laughs> I ain't. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to be like, best opportunity, let's go. I'd at least had a story of throwing a rock at him or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I jumped out of the thing to try to get closer. Oh, my God. Stabbing you know. Something. Regrets. Regrets. Oh, the old but, regrets. You know, it's all right, though. I, I'm hopeful this season. I, I've, I've been back there prepping everything, getting everything ready. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting up there because uh, last year I ended up killing two smaller deer. I killed a four-pointer, and then I killed a six-pointer, and it was nothing really, like, special, you know. And I was like, but I'm the same as you. I hunt for yeah, meat. meat. Meat in the freezer. Yeah, and, and that's same. it. I just want to get put meat in the freezer. And, and then I had an opportunity right after I made the first two kills, I had another smaller deer come by. And, and then I was, I was so focused on trophy hunting at that point <laughs> that I let this deer go by. And then I've been pissed all year because now I'm out of deer meat. Right. You know, We need to find some time to go to the professor's house, walk his land, and scope out. Oh, the professor's got a beautiful setup out there on the old homestead. Yeah. Yeah, he's got ridge lines and all kinds of beautiful stuff. Sure, you guys talk about it. It makes me want to try it. I'm just going to borrow a Salt Lake over by my leech field because I almost canoed one waiting for my furnace to kick on last fall <laughs> well we got an exciting trip coming up so the uh the lone star warrior outdoor guys that we're doing the sponsorship with the willies so they're going to be taking us on a hunt and uh we're going to go down to texas and we're going to do a hunt with those guys and uh yeah we're going to film it the whole nine yards and you know make it a whole thing so uh listening audience I do not know yet. I don't even know what we're hunting. They said it was going to be exotic game. Because uh, that's all I know. Exotic I, I, game. I do have it's in Texas. I do have a the Lone Star Warrior Outdoor guys. I do have an 07 oh, with an SOT. So you know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I do. So I do have some fully automatic weapon. Look, bro. Just saying. MK48 on a side by side. I'll do it. And what would say be, I won't? Now I'll tell you one thing. I will. I, I will stand by. Something that I did change this year and I will continue to do, and, and I have to give Sarge props for this. So one of the advantages that I got from training with Sarge in, in just the short time that I did, what, maybe four or six months, it wasn't yeah. terribly long, but he taught me so much about recoil management 
that I got to the point where I feel like I could accurately put a deer in one, two. And um, so the captain let me uh, borrow his DD5 this year because he wanted me to buy one, and I'm going to. Uh, uh, it and is the so, CIA's favorite weapon of yeah, choice. Yeah, so I go out. That second, deer, <laughs> that second deer that I shot this year, the one that Jay hooked on me, um, I ended up just going ahead and just dropping two on him. And uh, I'll tell you what, that was the best decision I made because the first deer I shot this year, you know, I, I hate tracking deer. That is the number one thing I hate. And um, this year when I went ahead and just one-twoed it, that thing dropped right where it's set end of story and i was like you know what this is going to be the method 300 blackout suppressed 300 blackout suppressed yeah who makes is it cva that makes one they make a break action 300 blackout it's suppressed a bunch, a bunch oh, of yeah, and it's supposed to be out. it's quieter than an air rifle yeah yeah suppressed any break action yep. or bolt action yep well, even a, a good suppressed AR is literally quieter than a twenty-two. Well, I got to. It is, but with a break license. action or bolt action, oh, yeah, you don't no even have, you don't have the sound of the action. Yeah, no you action. So might what's, have a hammer what's the details on applying for the suppressor license? Why don't you guys inform me and the listening audience you, of that? You pay a two hundred dollar uh, payment for the tax stamp itself. The wait last I heard was about a year again. One hundred and seventy-one days. Yeah, you just did it, right? Yeah. You got that one you bought from us. Yeah. Um, on a form one or four? Four. Form four? You can make your own. That's pretty good. Form one, you got to make your own. Form four, you're buying it from somebody right. else. Uh, it's worth doing. Uh, I only have one can um, that I got, but it's multi caliber. It's from 22LR all the way up to 338 loop. Uh, it's the Griffin Optimus. I got it just so I I'm probably gonna buy a dedicated 22 can just cause if you want to hunt suppressed or if you want if you want to shoot suppressed in a rifle caliber 300 AAC is the way to go. Well, I'll tell you what, that's the biggest the reason why I'm looking forward to it is because it's so quiet. Because the biggest advantage to bow hunting is once you drop that deer while you're doing your wait time, you have more than enough opportunity to be able to get anything else. Coming well, the through. the brass slap in the tree was louder than the actual. Yeah. Rifle firing itself. Yeah, yeah, ridiculous. And if you get a can with a wipe or a wipe option in it yeah, yeah. too, and then you can actually take like surge lube, so you don't get what they call the first round pop on a suppressor. So you can actually run it down. It's called making your cam wet. It kills mm. that first round pop. I've got some. If well, you that's get it that's what I was interested in that break action that I seen because it was. Oh a, yeah, because any, it was a break yeah, action. There no was action. just no. Yeah. There was no sound whatsoever. It's, it's primer at that point. Yeah, it was so quiet. Yeah, because I had that. Um, the the very first time that I went hunting because I didn't get to hunt when I was a kid and so the very first time I went hunting I had a, I had this uh, probably an eight to twelve point deer I, who knows at this point it's probably grown so much over time but it uh, it was a spike it was yeah. a spike <laughs> a you know, but uh, it, it popped out it was of the, the woodlot I, I the wasn't <laughs> I wasn't in my tree stand thirty minutes and this thing popped out of the woodline. And um, I had a beautiful, clean, broadside or broadside shot on it, and I had uh, eight mil Mauser that's hanging up there, and uh, missed that thing bigger than shit. And so I went ahead and I I pulled the I, I pulled the charging handle back and dropped it, and then that round ding 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 all down my all damn down the stairs. And then he still stood there, 
Yep. And then I, I had buck fever so bad I pulled the trigger again and missed bigger than shit. And then that is like, uh, and then he just walked away like you're an idiot. Well, hunting, <laughs> hunting is crazy. I mean, you've got you've got you got so many different camps. You got the you have to do it. You have to wear scent block, and you got to put this mm-hmm. out, and you got to do this, and you got to wear camo, and you can't move, and you can't fart, and you can't. There's that camp, and then there's the other camp. And I've killed deer in both camps. I was gonna say, yeah, four years ago, I, I I sat all day. I literally didn't get out of the tree stand. And like at two o'clock, I'm like, "Fuck this! I gotta go stretch." So I got down, smoked a cigarette, climbed back up the steps, and as I'm sitting down, and I wasn't quiet at all. I think I actually ate some Oreos or something with a ruffly bag too. Climbed back up a letter stand, and as I'm sitting down, one of the largest deer I've ever seen in my life was 25 yards in front of me. He was literally standing there watching me fuck off. <laughs> I sat down, I put my bag on a clip, grabbed my rifle, put it on him, squeezed the trigger, and he down. Makes for a good day, don't it? <laughs> that was, that <laughs> that happened like at like six or seven in the morning. It would have been great, but it was literally, literally me there all day. That's my, my father yeah. And I got to the point where I was, I was like, fuck it, I, I got to get down. I'm, ah, I'm not going to kill anything. This is going to be a father, terrible day. My father-in-law, he's one of the blue jeans, red flannel guys. And every year he goes out, and this past year, him and my mother-in-law, she decided to go with him. They were walking to the stand, and a little four-pointer is walking towards him. Old school, lever action, 30-30, fires, misses, which he's a hell of a shot. I'm really surprised that deer kept walking towards him. He went, <laughs> boom, and just dropped him right there. I'm like, you didn't even make it to the stand. Yep. Are you shitting me oh, right man. now? Yep. Buck fever is real, though. Yes, it is. I'll tell you what, it is a lot harder to hit something when you got all that adrenaline going and you're shaking. And yeah, the the best shots that I've made is the ones where they've surprised me and I've only had a, a split second to pull the trigger. It, the longer you have to sit there with that deer in front of you, the worse that gets. You got to control your breathing. That's what it's all about. Just breathe. And that's what she said. And relax your stomach. <laughs> Sound like you have experience with that, Captain. <laughs> No comment. Bite the pillow. Now we're moving into prison talk. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Well, none of us have been to prison, I don't think. Look at that. Prison, no. No. Yeah, not, no. not prison. Allegedly, probably should have. But no. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Oh, man. Well, do you also do fishing, don't you? Yeah, I do. I fish a lot. I've seen some fancy-ass kayaks sitting in the back of your truck the other day. It had pedals on it and all kinds of shit. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so I've, I've always been a bank fisherman my whole life. and then Well, no, I say that my whole life. I took a big stint off of fishing. Uh, I think my dad broke me of that uh, at a young age. So I, I didn't fish at all for many years. And then my shop manager, uh, he's an avid fisherman. So the more he talked about it, the more he did, the more I'm like, ah, oh, you know, probably need to get back into this again. Uh, he talked me into, into looking on Facebook uh, for kayaks, and I found a, a used Vibe kayak, which is uh, an amazing kayak. I got a smoking deal on it. Made him uber jealous. Um, nice. Got it on the water uh, the first time. I was like, yeah, man, I've been missing out. Like, I, I love it. So we, we kayak fish all the time now, as much as we possibly can. I had a guy... Uh He's in my company in Hawaii, and he actually was in all the kayak tournaments. Mm. Like a regular winner, he was probably making three grand every weekend just from the fish. Nice. Not even the well, and he had run like a little charter on a boat he had, but when they were in Afghanistan, it got destroyed. So by the time I got there, he was 
uh, just doing kayaks. And he actually had a video at one point where he had a big-ass hammerhead hanging out underneath his kayak. He took his GoPro off and put it in the water. He's like, look at that. Nope. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? You guys see the video of the shark attacking the kayak? Oh, yeah. No. It's it's not it, just, it. It, it just it comes at him and fish, hits, that thing. <laughs> it hits that he thing. It hits that thing hard. screaming, shark, shark. Yeah. He's like, whoa, it just attacked me. Like, it almost got his leg. Like, legit, it would. it's enough for enough people to be like, I'm not going in the ocean again. Yeah, bluegill, it. crappie, and bass. <laughs> Those are my jams. <laughs> so have you dabbled into bow fishing yet? I have not. We've been I, discussing. I, okay, I, I, I like to. Be prepared to Go dive down the rabbit hole of investing and buying everything, because once you do it I the heard. first time, you're fucked. Yeah, I heard I've heard it's uh, an addiction. A buddy of mine, he tried years to get me to go with it. I'm like, this sounds fucking stupid. You're going to shoot a fish with a bow and arrow. This is dumb. He finally convinced me to go down to Louisiana with him and go redfish. And uh, we went, and we weren't even back to the boat. We were scheduling the next one. It's the best fucking time of my life. Like, if I have a a dirty addiction, that's it. Yeah. It's dangerous, Well, man. we haven't gone aerial pig hunting yet, Danny. True yet. story. <laughs> Give it time. Right. <laughs> right. It's that's a bucket happen. list item. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I want I've been wanting to do that for a long time. That and the uh, the side by side automatics. Dude, I would Yeah. Yep. So I just got uh <clears throat> And and you and you and I both know automatics are literally just for fun. Sure. <laughs> I mean, what other purpose do they really serve? Right. I mean, isn't all for fun? I just got a good theory. I just got a monocular thermal that actually can caught onto the front of a LPVO like too. Like ATN or it's uh yeah. It's it's can be helmet mounted or the front. It's, it's kind of stupid. Pretty, it's pretty, <laughs> <off>. pretty <laughs> awesome. It's pretty awesome. Eric came over. Dumb. I'm like, check this out. He goes, no fucking way. I go, yeah, and I can dual bridge it with my 14s. I was gonna say you've <laughs> got to have at least some 14s and a pack. So when we go on Kyle hunting, Sam? I've actually got two right. Hollisons, uh, just because I have too much shit to throw lasers on. I've got a couple. They Hollisons really stepping their game up, man. Well, even there's a lot of companies doing other stuff too, like um, Tactical Night Vision Company. I yeah, think, TV or they, or uh, no, no, no. There's another one. They got a you can uh, you can change the the lamp out for the white light or the oh green or white. It sits real low and it's got a la- the laser is just in the middle, but it's the lowest footprint on an AR. I can't remember who makes it. Hmm, it's interesting. Pretty, it's pretty badass though, and it the price is it's not. I'd almost rather have that than a mall. Almost. 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 But I also don't want to, like, buy a car for a Yeah, mall. no shit. <laughs> well, you, I, we were talking before this all started, too, on the whole night vision, all that stuff that's that's happening here local. Um, that's, that's a whole new addiction. Whole new addiction, getting into night vision shooting. Getting yep. to pecs and thermals and bump helmets and all the other shit that's required. Oh, I know. And it's a it's a rich man's game, but boy, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I got a, especially when no one's shooting at you know back at you. Like, I got a buddy that's coming from Pennsylvania. He's got a Thor four. It's a it's ATZ. I think is the yeah the, the Thor. Yep. And he's not very computer literate at all. And he's like, "Will you help me sight this thing?" And when I come to Missouri, I'm like, "Fuck yes, I will." <laughs> Are yeah, you absolutely. kidding me? Let's go. Yeah. Well, I I I, I at one point had a, a thermal that fell off the truck. From yeah. Uncle Sugar. Yeah. Um, Even that yep. happens. It was broke. It was terrible. It just didn't work worth a shit. Nope. Um, Can you find those, one? Those were a lot of fun. Even broken. Mm-hmm. Broken and not functioning. No, not by any means. 
how do you find one of those deals? <laughs> fell off a truck. Fell off I know. a truck. Whose <laughs> truck do I got to follow <laughs> and wait for that thing just to fall? Just go down 270. It's amazing oh, yeah. what you'll find. Right. Yeah, I haven't got any of that yet. Yeah. That's in due time, sir. In due time. Yeah, now isn't it uh, now when it comes to like predator hunting in Missouri, aren't you allowed to use thermals for oh, this? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the only interest I've had in buying a thermal. Yeah. I have that Ruger now, and so I really want to do some predator hunting. It's big on me. I've killed so many MCOPs with that DD5, but I've not killed one at night. And I, I just cool. got to grip my teeth one day and pull enough money out of my ass to buy it. But That's the hard gonna, part. It's going to be a little bit. Separating the money from the toys. Yeah. I remember. Well, that's the whole reason why I don't have a DD5 yet. <laughs> <clears throat> you can just borrow mine, right? There you go. Yes, I will. <laughs> I'll do that when I can actually find components for reloading again and make my own loads. They're starting to come back. I and know. So many, so many jokes that what I repressed you, right there. I have a, there's a lot. Yeah, there's I have been a lot of jokes I've been repressing I don't, uh, on a lot of different conversations. I got some some stock if you need some. Maybe, well, like I said, I just got to wait. I'm waiting on money to come back and okay. then man can you believe it's already been two hours has it really dude yeah. holy cow this time flew what a pleasure to have you on the podcast sir oh, I'll thank you i'll tell you what i really enjoyed our conversation i i learned a lot about you and i've known you for a while so i imagine that uh the audience that listening is going to really enjoy the story especially those that have been following you over the years you know the man the myth the legend <laughs> that is jeff Forbush. oh lord oh man i'll tell you what you know funny story on that my uh stepson is super into guns and uh he is definitely a gun fanatic and um the very first time that i met you when i told him that i met you and he goes for Bush, and I was like, "Yeah, he's like for real," and he lost his shit. You were like a mini celebrity to him, so it's actually uh, kind of disappointing that he's not here today. Uh, but they're out in Colorado enjoying life, so you know, go Ooh, figure that. Do. Yeah, but uh, man, I do appreciate you having you in here. You, the the stories that you shared and the information that you shared was excellent. Yeah, well, thank you, thanks, uh, thanks well, again, guys, for having me. Well, love we're to gonna have you back on. Definitely. Yeah, I'd love to love to be back. Oh, we are all about repeat guests. I'm telling you what. So well, I mean, we'll, I am the official supplier, right? You are the official supplier, so the one making all the stoned apes gear. So yeah, absolutely, yeah, we appreciate you for that. So if you're still listening out there in the audience, uh, do me a favor: make sure you go ahead and subscribe, and then hit that notification bell so that you don't miss future episodes. We will be posting episodes every week, and uh, they'll come out every week uh, on Saturday by midnight. Uh, we do appreciate you guys, and I, I love the fact that you guys enjoy. Make sure to look for some comments on our videos and. And you can find us on Facebook. You can also find us on Instagram. You can go to www.thestonedapespodcast.com. And uh, if you go ahead and register there, you can send us messages. I want to hear your feedback. I want to hear what it is that you like, what you want to hear more of. If you've got show suggestions or guest suggestions, reach out to us. Uh, we monitor that website, so you will most likely get a message back from one of the hosts. And uh, we'll be glad to interact with you. There's also a community forum 
on there as well so that you'll be able to interact with other listeners and other people who follow podcasts. So it's a, it's a great opportunity. Also on the website is our new Stoned Apes merchandise provided by Strategic Stitch. What, what? So we will have a lot more releases coming. We're still trying to figure out the bugs on this and uh, make sure that we get everything. So everything is available for pre-order right now. Uh, we'll have orders going out in August. And then make sure you keep checking back because we have a lot of shirt designs, a lot of other merchandise, a lot of other gear that we're going to be putting out. And it's all going to be custom made by your man over here on the podcast. So it's going to be a good time. We appreciate you all and I thank you for listening. I want to go ahead and thank our episode sponsor. A big shout out to Malevolent Art Studios over there in Barnhart, Missouri. That is my man, Anthony Ferguson over there. If you guys are looking for a new tattoo, go down and check out Anthony Ferguson and his artists. They are absolutely fantastic. Um, They will give you a customer service experience that you will enjoy. They will treat you with respect and they'll be friendly. They'll listen to your ideas and he will create something that you are going to be happy with. His line work and saturation and uh, the tattoo quality that he produces. I have art from him myself and it is absolutely fantastic. So go over there and check out my man Anthony at Malevolent Art Studios in Barnhart, Missouri. If you look on the description of the podcast, you will see a link there. Make sure that you mention the Stoned Apes podcast and you'll get 20% off any booked tattoo. And I don't know, but I am also pretty sure that you can request a Stoned Apes tattoo through this studio. And they got a special hookup price for that. So go ahead and make sure you mention that to my man, Anthony. All right. For the Stoned Apes podcast, this episode is over and we are out.